I ever tell you about the first time I leave the state of Georgia? When was that? A few minutes back. Go on. Yes. <laughs> now, my daughter, she's married to a Pullman Porter, you know. She's always on the go. New York, Detroit, St. Louis. <laughs> I said, well, now that's all well and good, Tommy Lee, but I just don't feel the need for it. So here it is. First time. And I might tell you, Miss Daisy, Alabama ain't looking like much so far. On a hot summer day in August, hundreds of people gather in Colony, Alabama for an annual town reunion and homecoming. Kids giggle their way through outdoor games and hamburgers sizzle on the grill. It's everything you want from a southern cookout. They call the celebration Colony Day, and longtime resident Inez Malcolm looks forward to it. We really uh, enjoy our community, and a lot of people from different areas would, they don't believe that black people live in Coleman County. And we do. You know, we coincide with everybody, and everybody gets along. A lot of people here call the town the colony, and residents say to live here is to embrace the simple life. Kids play freely in the woods, and neighbors always share with one another. Everybody, nobody in my community will ever go hungry, because there's always somebody that knows somebody. On Colony Day, everyone honors their shared history. Colony was settled by formerly enslaved people in the mid-19th century on land that wasn't known for being very fertile. Since white settlers didn't want the land they lived on, the colony was largely left alone and black farmers were able to work their land, make money, and eventually buy their plots. Robert Davis, who's a history professor at Wallace State Community College in Coleman County, says it was a place where you could be black without fear, especially in the early 1900s. The black community in Coleman County owned more land than any other community. They had their own stores, their own mills, their own schools, the whole nine yards. When Colony was established, it was not originally in Coleman County. They weren't welcome. Davis says there were no black people, or at least very few in the county. And the county's largest community, also called Coleman, was a sundown town. But at some point, Davis says mines opened on local coal deposits, bringing jobs and money for black laborers in the colony. And Coleman County leaders wanted in. And you can't bring Stout Mountain and the coal mines in unless you also bring in the colony. Combining the area's oldest black town in a known anti-black county could have been a recipe for a disaster. Coleman had a terrible reputation. That's Erlene Johnson, one of Colony's oldest residents. They say blacks were afraid to come through Coleman. Even on the train said they would pull the shades down when they rode through Coleman. But Johnson says the relationship between the town and the county was more complicated than that. She says there were racial tensions between the colony and the rest of Coleman, but it wasn't as bad as in other parts of Alabama. Johnson went to college in Montgomery. And I was in school doing the marches when Reverend King and all, and Rosa Parks were riding the bus, and I was in college about then. We did not have that kind of fight going on, you know, struggle going on, where they put dogs and what have you. She says residents of the colony were largely self-sufficient, so they didn't need to go into Coleman often. But when they did, it was fine. After college, when she moved back to Colony, she became a teacher and later mayor. 
Johnson says she applied for any and every grant to get Colony a library in a town hall building. Her team's work to grow Colony led to the town's official incorporation in 1981. Johnson, who is now 84, says she hopes a new generation can continue to build up the colony. Back at Colony Day, Jasmine Cole is wearing a t-shirt that says Team Colony, Lifetime Member. She's 27, and she says she was inspired by Johnson when she was a young girl to continue building up the colony. So I was more just following her footsteps, trying to um, get the colony back live again because it was like withering away. Cole is the town's youngest council member, and she organized the last two Colony Day celebrations in hopes to keep people coming back. I'm proud of this area. It's always been a good community, so it means a lot to me. It's my home. <laughs> Colony is not a town that is solely defined by its history. It's a community of people that supported one another through good and bad times. Cole says she wants to get more people to move to the Colony and continue the town's self-made legacy. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Kyra Miles. Mama, I got you. For nearly 100 years, a monument to Confederate veterans stood in a small town north of Rocky Mount called Enfield. Earlier this month, the town commission voted to remove it, and the mayor of Enfield volunteered to do it himself. He used a hammer and a bulldozer and live-streamed it. The event attracted attention from well beyond Enfield and made the mayor the subject of a state investigation and the target of racist hate mail. But as Will Michaels reports, it also started a new chapter in his life as a community organizer and activist. Enfield, North Carolina has about 2,300 people and the character of a lot of small southern towns. There's a set of train tracks that runs right through the middle with two or three-story brick buildings on either side. Mayor Mondale Robinson is showing me around. When this town was bustling in my, mom, my mom's and pop's childhood, the businesses that were closed at nine as the point where black people had to leave. On the side of one building is a sign in faded orange paint that says Myers, a grocery store that's long been out of business. So my mom talks about going in here when she was younger, getting canned foods and food for her brothers and sisters. And when, when it came out, like, it's after 9 o'clock, so she sprayed uh, down the sidewalk, the pressure pushing it down the sidewalk. They talk about it in a way like it's, like, they're, they're laughing, but it's not a real laugh. I can see the pain behind it. Um, and they call it, like, oh, yeah, I was washed down the street. And, and that's what, like, a lot of black people in their age refer to it as. And he says his father was charged with a felony after trying to defend his mother from a white man who hit her. Probably some of the reasons... I, I, I react a certain way I do when I see um, white supremacy either in institutional um, spaces or individual spaces. Robinson grew up a few blocks from here in a section of town known locally as Black Bottom. This is Ghana Street. There's a row of four condemned shotgun houses here. Their foundations are crumbling, their porches are sinking, and their wood siding has faded to white and gray. When I grown up, this is the shotgun house here. This was a dirt road, uh, and we didn't have running water. Um, so we had an outhouse 
Robinson left Enfield when he was 17 to join the Marine Corps. He says he made a few good friends there, but had his own experiences that reinforced the stories he heard from his parents. Then in 2005, Robinson's brother went to prison for shooting two white men in their legs after they spat on him and called him the N-word. I gave him a ride away from the scene. Robinson says he was not charged at the time and did not hear about it again until two years later, when he was charged with accessory after the fact and given six years probation. I'm doing political work organizing, and I, I guess I pissed off the status quo. That was the greatest thing to happen to me um, because it grounded me in, in, in what I already knew. Like, so my father's and my uncle's story is now beginning, my, is becoming my story. You made white people mad, you get a felony conviction, or you get dead. Uh, before that moment, I had never contemplated college. After that moment, I ran through school, um, 4.0 GPA, and became a uh, organizing monster. So white supremacy made me uh, this person. With a newly earned degree in political science, Robinson took consulting jobs around the country for Democratic or independent candidates, and he worked to mobilize voters against North Carolina's Amendment 1, which banned same-sex marriage before the Supreme Court legalized it in 2015. That was my introduction into like what I was going to do forever. Like, I know how to organize black people, and it can't be this transactional way where you show up two, three months before an election with proverbial church fan and fried chicken and think you're gonna move people, you gotta have relationships. Robinson's video of the moment Enfield's Confederate monument fell now has about 8,000 views on Facebook. It's time for this monument to come down. People voted, I tried with a hammer, that wasn't enough. So now here come the tractors. Drive it down. Yes, sirs. Yes, sirs. Yes, sirs. Death to the Confederacy around here. According to the UNC Chapel Hill University Library, the United Daughters of the Confederacy dedicated the monument in 1928. It was a 10-foot-tall marble slab with a Confederate flag carved in the middle. The town later added inscriptions to honor veterans of World War II and the wars in Korea, Vietnam, and the Persian Gulf. So the statue was right over here in this brown spot it's, that's going to be beautiful and green soon. Right here where the flag is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a Confederate flag in front of the U.S. flag. Are these little pieces of marble? Is that what it that is? is? Yeah. yeah. Robinson lives just a block away from here. Yeah. So the day after I did it, the, the day after I took down the, the monument when I came out next day, I live right across this field right here. It was just trucks lined right here, uh, with white guys with guns on both sides. The intimidation continued for days. Racist flyers claiming to be from the KKK started showing up around town. Robinson's social media and email started blowing up. Some messages had explicit language and racial slurs. Others were threatening. This one came from somebody named Chris. The Confederate States are still active today with members who will stand for their heritage. You will be watched closely. Persons will address you while you are working, when you are in public, and doing your everyday outings. We are one, we are many. Sincerely, the Invisible Empire. And of course, the Invisible Empire is the clan. I gotta say, like, I, you know, I don't think I would have agreed to an interview like this, you know what I mean? Like, a, a white guy who you don't know is coming in with, like, all this audio equipment. And yeah, I definitely didn't blindly invite you down here. My team definitely ran the papers on Will Michaels I before guess. he came to Enfield. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, you passed the test, brother.
What's up, boy? You good? Yep. We walk back toward the center of town, down the same road where Robinson says he remembers the Klan marching when he was in elementary school. On the way, Robinson waves or says hello to everyone who passes by. What's going on, boss man? How you doing? This is partly because Robinson knows just about everyone in town, but it's also a system of protection. I've not seen any cops, not police, local or county sheriff, drive past my house once um, to make sure that, you know, nothing nefarious is happening. Local folk are driving past the house to make sure that, you know, nothing's happening to the mayor and that is not their job. At the request of Enfield's police chief and the local district attorney, the State Bureau of Investigation is looking into Robinson's actions. North Carolina law protects these monuments with some exceptions. The SBI would not provide any more information about the investigation. Mondale Robinson came back to Enfield last year. He now runs a group born out of his experience as a political organizer called the Black Male Voter Project. At age 43, he says he's here for good. I came home to fix what I thought was just the decay of buildings, but it's it's in the souls of some of the, the residents that we got to really deal with this. And um, America's tolerance for black pain is unbelievably high. Will Michaels, North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Uh, I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the back seat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And seeing all of those parents and also KKK members uh, having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us. We lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and, and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years, angry. of November 14, 1960, a little girl named Ruby Bridges became the first black child to desegregate the all-white William France Elementary School in New Orleans. Ruby was six, and as she got dressed and left for school that day, she told me she didn't know she was making history. I had no idea that it was going to be a white school. It wasn't something that my parents explained to me. As a matter of fact, the only thing they said is, Ruby, you're going to go to a new school today and you'd better behave. Four federal marshals had to drive her and an angry white mob greeted her at the school. They got places for you. Living in New Orleans, I was accustomed to Mardi Gras. And that's exactly what it looked like to me. White people, black people all lined up together and you know, shouting and waving their hands and throwing things. Today, Ruby Bridges is a civil rights activist and an author. Her new children's book, I Am Ruby Bridges, tells her story through her six-year-old eyes. So I asked her to read a bit for me. Second day, when I arrived at my classroom, my new teacher opens the door and greets me. Hi, I'm Mrs. Henry, your teacher. Come in and take a seat she says. And aren't I surprised? Because she is also white. I never had a white teacher before. The biggest surprise of all, I am the only kid in the class. I didn't see any other kids at all. 
not one. That test must have been a lot harder than I thought. Why am I the only kid in my class? Not to mention the only kid in the whole school. And why don't I see anyone who looks like me? And then that's when it hit me. As I was reading, it took me a minute to get that, that why there were no other kids. Um, this is because white parents had come to school and, and pulled their kids out, taken them home? Absolutely. When I arrived on the first day, the mob of people standing outside rushed inside of the building behind me. I was escorted to the principal's office where I sat the whole, in, whole day with my mom waiting to be assigned to a classroom. But that did not happen because every one of those parents rushed in behind me, went into every classroom and they pulled out every child. I watched them parade right past me out of the school building. And so by the time I got there on the second day, the school was totally empty. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Did it get better? Did, did kids, other kids eventually show up? You know, um, I think part of the story that lots of people are not aware of is that there were some white parents who actually tried to cross that same picket line, that same mob, during that year to bring their kids to school with me. But it was only a handful, maybe five, six kids. And uh, the principal would take them and she would hide them so that they would never see me and I would never see them. I remember hearing voices, but I never saw kids. And it kept me wondering where the voices were coming from. If they were real at all, what I did not know is that um, every time I would mention it to Mrs. Henry, she was going to the principal and advocating for me. She was saying, you know, the laws changed and kids can be together now, but you're hiding them from room B. If you don't allow them to come together, I'm going to report you to the superintendent. And that forced them to allow Mrs. Henry to take me to where they were being hidden. And that was near the end of the year. Near the end of the year. I'm thinking I just introduced you as the first African-American student to integrate an elementary school in the South. And it sounds like integrate was way too strong a word for what was happening at that school for most of that school year. Yes. Um, you know, that was always something that bothered me. I, I was the only kid and it stayed that way um, until the end of the year when Mrs. Henry took me to this other classroom and opened the door and lo and behold, there they were, four or five kids sitting there playing. And I was so excited. It didn't matter to me what they looked like. I just wanted someone my own age to play with. So I was excited to find them finally. But I have to say that that was the day that I realized that everything was about me and the color of my skin because a little boy said, I can't play with you. My mom said not to play with you. And he called me the N-word. And um, that's when I had my aha moment that the reason why there were no kids here was because of me and the color of my skin. He actually made it make sense. I did not realize what was going on around me until he told me. 
And that my first encounter with racism, he introduced it to me. You're only in your 60s now. What happened to you that first day of school was so recent in the grand scheme of things. And it occurs to me that the kids reading this today, um, many, most of them will take it for granted that black and white kids go to school together. This is totally normal. Like, how else would it be? They've never known anything else. How How did you think about writing to kids for whom this must feel like ancient history in a way? And yet it so clearly isn't. What I've found in the past 25 years visiting schools and talking to kids and working with them, I think that they relate to the loneliness. They relate to someone not wanting to play with you for no real good reason, not giving you a chance. And so kids, it resonates with them. They don't quite understand why someone would do that, why someone would treat another person like that. And I think that they feel like, why don't we give each other a chance? Try to get to know each other, that everyone at that age wants a friend to play with. And I think that that's part of what they resonate with. The fact that it's also explaining a time in history when we couldn't be together. You know, it touches on something that I truly want them to understand. That racism just does not make any sense. And they get that. And, you know, once this book is closed and I know that they've gotten that, then I feel like part of my work is done. We've been speaking with Ruby Bridges, author of the children's book, I Am Ruby Bridges, How One Six-Year-Old Girl's March to School Changed the World. Thank you. Thank you. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident. And the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. Members of the Marquette Black Student Council felt they had to protest the convocation because they believed the university had not been listening to their concerns. For the Black Student Council of Marquette University, the decision to protest the convocation boiled down to the treatment of black students and faculty on campus and the lack of support for the Office of Engagement and Inclusion in the Urban Scholars Program. Samari Price says these issues make life harder for minority students than it needs to be. Usually does a convocation to welcome students, but we felt like how is it a welcome when all these students, especially the 30% of students of color, are going to come into this university, that they are going to experience racism and oppression. That's not welcoming students at all. Lionel Clay explains the Urban Scholars Program isn't properly staffed. They only have one full-time faculty member present in the entire department and only one part-time faculty member who can only accommodate five individuals. So when you do the math, that's putting around 80 students advising, you know, meeting hours, all on one individual. And that's just not a sustainable program. When asked about the protest, Marquette said because of the disruptive nature of the demonstration, the university rescheduled the event. They also issued a statement saying in part, 
Marquette has grown its Urban Scholars Program for first-generation and financially disadvantaged students from the Milwaukee area and has already committed to hiring another full-time staff person for the program in 2023. Clay believes that still isn't enough. The only staff that they plan on hiring is just one more coordinator. So that's a program that by that time will have to support 120 scholars, not 80, 120 scholars, and they will only have one full-time faculty member and one coordinator. Price believes the lack of support they are getting from the university is frustrating, but wants students of color to know that they have a voice, they belong, and can succeed at Marquette. We want people to know that in this moment, in that moment, you're going to hear what we have to say, whether you know we're on this stage or not, and you know, that's how we felt like we had to do it, and because it seems like the peaceful, quote-unquote, peaceful way wasn't working, so we had to take a more other approach to get what we had to say out. They both hope the protest of the convocation will lead to more dialogue and action that will lead to positive change. In Milwaukee, Philip Boudreaux, Spectrum News. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. We're back with a story a lot of you are talking about. This video is being shared all over social media. It shows a group of boys singing a song on a metro train. And people who were there say the words coming out of their mouths made them feel uncomfortable. Landon School in Bethesda confirms the boys are students there and they could be facing some disciplinary action. John Henry is here to help us unpack what happened. John? Hi, Leslie. This happened Thursday afternoon. DC blogger Jose Romero hopped on the metro with a train full of students. What he heard from some of them just minutes later would go on to shock both him and others in the D.C. region. When Jose Romero got on his evening red line train, he noticed it was louder than usual. A group of teens were making noise. Kids get boisterous. But then a song by the rapper Lil Baby blared over a speaker. They were singing very loudly. And the boys joined in as that song dropped a slur several times. Just the N-word is said three times. We censored the word in Romero's video and blurred their faces. There was a young African-American girl sitting in front of me and the look on her face, like her jaw was just like open, like in shock. You know, I gave props to the to whoever stopped it. You know, the kid that said, no, 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 no. it did not end there. However, Romero said some boys then laughed. They really trivialized what they did. The Landon School, a private boys school in Bethesda, confirmed the students in the video attend their school. Landon said it's deeply concerned by the video and their students' offensive words are unacceptable. It added it's sorry for the hurt the video has caused and that it will work to instill respect, honor, and kindness in its students. Romero said Landon can use the incident as a teaching moment. A lot of it is probably ignorance. They don't realize what they're saying. They haven't been taught that. They haven't grown up around minorities. or you, you feel safety in that group and you feel like you can do anything. And I think that's what happened there. And that's dangerous. Now, Romero said he talked with Landon's dean of students for 10 minutes today. The school said its investigation of this incident is ongoing.
Leslie? Yeah, perhaps it can be a learning opportunity if they're willing to have some uncomfortable and some courageous conversations. We'll see. Michigan has some of the highest average costs for calling people in jail. In-person visits were shut down when COVID hit. That's left families struggling to stay in touch with their loved ones. Michigan radio reporter Beanish Ahmed brings us the story of one woman whose husband made a life-changing decision without being able to talk it through with her. Felicia Mordlet has a special bond with her husband, Terrence. They got married on her 40th birthday, and he always made their anniversary into a celebration. Oh, when he was home, he'd always make the fun of everything. You know, between the cake and ice cream and the gifts and... Probably having a water balloon fight and splashing around in the pool, we would be doing something crazy. But they haven't been able to celebrate together in the last two years. Terrence has spent most of that time in the Wayne County Jail, waiting to go to court. In-person visits to the jail are free, but... Because of the pandemic, we only were able to video talk over the phone. Two and a half years into the pandemic, family and friends still can't visit their loved ones in the Wayne County Jail. So they've had to pay to keep in touch. The cost of being able to even pay for a call and for us to even that same area call, it's ridiculously high. For someone in the Wayne County Jail to make a 15-minute in-state call, it costs about $4.20. Those charges have added up for Felicia. I have to take care of the house. I have to take care of, you know, the kids and everything else. It's hard. I, there's not nothing I can really do to even help in this situation. Felicia has four kids. Her only income is a monthly disability check. Terrence used to cover half their expenses, but she's had to make do without his income ever since he was arrested. On top of that, she's had to pay to keep in touch with him. At first, she had some savings, so they talked a few times a week. Then, if I was lucky, I'd talk to him twice a month. I talked to Felicia on June 15th. That's her birthday and her wedding anniversary. She hadn't had the money to call Terrence in weeks, so she didn't know that he was considering an offer for a plea deal. Lawyers said he could take a 13-year prison sentence instead of waiting to go to court and letting a jury decide his fate. He took the deal. Felicia says she doesn't blame him. He sat there for two years. I can perfectly understand why he wanted it done with or over with. It hurts, but I can understand. It also hurts that she had to find out about Terrence's decision from his sister, since Felicia couldn't afford to call him. Why does it cost so much to call someone in jail? To answer that question, you have to take a look at the contracts. These are very lucrative contracts. Bianca Tylek is with Worth Rises, 
an organization that advocates for free communication for people in correctional facilities. She says that only a few companies provide phone service to jails and prisons, and those companies try to outbid each other by giving some of their profit back to jails and prisons. At the end of the day, these are payments from a corporation to a government agency uh, for the ability to contract for that agency, which essentially are just corporate kickbacks or what feels like legalized bribery. The corrections telecom company, Telmate, gives Wayne County a minimum of $1.75 million a year. That minimum annual guarantee is written into the contract to provide phone and video calls from jail. It's certainly the government taking their portion, but the company is obviously also taking their portion. That money comes from the higher cost of calls. A portion of every minute of every call someone in the Wayne County Jail makes to a lawyer or a loved one goes back to the county. Everyone gets to win at the end of the day, except for the people who are relying on this communication service and have absolutely zero say about how it's administered. There are additional costs for phone and video calls from jail. The calls are monitored, and who gets called and for how long is tracked. We wanted to ask the Wayne County Sheriff's Office about its contract with Telmates, about the money it makes and how it spends that money, but the Sheriff's Office declined to speak with us for this story. Felicia Morlett still hadn't heard from Terrence as the day of their anniversary turned to night and she still hadn't been able to talk to him about the plea deal he took, a deal which will keep them apart for more than a decade. Next week, it will be a month that he has been in prison. And I've been dealing with the 13 years. Um, to me, I can handle it. You know, I just could handle it and deal with it a lot better if at least I could talk to him. Terrence Morlett is now in a state prison. The cost of a 15-minute call from there is half of what it was when he was in the Wayne County Jail. Beanish Ahmed, Michigan Radio News. Okay, now you're talking my language, now you're talking my language. Now you're talking my language, now you're talking my language. Being ready is real, I don't know about you. Good morning, I'm Rachel Martin. 370 words and phrases have been added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Love it or hate it, pumpkin spice was among the new additions, along with yeet, an exclamation of excitement. Sus, short for suspicious or suspect. And I see YMI for in case you missed it. Adding new words to the dictionary always causes a brouhaha, but Merriam-Webster says a word becomes eligible if it's used by a lot of people over a long time. A terrible thing to waste environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. The U.S. Justice Department is investigating how the city of Houston responds to illegal dumping. This follows a civil rights complaint. That complaint accuses the city of being slower to respond to illegal dumping in communities of color than in wealthier white neighborhoods. News 88.7 environmental reporter Katie Watkins visited several chronic dump sites. Huey German Wilson has been trying to clean up the trash in her northeast Houston neighborhood for years. We've seen some really horrible things in terms of illegal dumping. Um, medical waste, you know, we had boats dumped, trailers. I found half a car 
We found 200 tires. German Wilson is president of Super Neighborhood 48, which includes Trinity Gardens and Houston Gardens. She's organized neighborhood cleanups, created spreadsheets of all the illegal dumping sites, and become an expert at using the city's 311 system. But she still couldn't make a dent in the problem. Once you got one pile picked up, it moved to another spot. And it took years to get that pile cleaned up because people knew they could dump there. The dumping is so pervasive and so regular that when I asked German Wilson to show me a few of the spots, we didn't have to go very far. So you're gonna go to the stop sign and take a left. Driving less than a mile down a residential street, we pass at least five different illegal dumping spots. Uh, it looks like somebody did a roof and they dumped all the roof debris. But you see, it's somebody redid their bathroom. There's a sink in there, a commode, the vanity, and then you add the chairs and the tires and the tub. German Wilson says she thinks part of the reason it's so bad is because they're close to landfills in a depository. On top of that, she believes the city doesn't respond as quickly or penalize dumpers in the same way they do in other wider, wealthier parts of the city. And those allegations are why the Department of Justice is investigating whether Houston is discriminating in its response to illegal dumping in communities of color. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark says this is part of the Biden administration's commitment to addressing environmental justice issues. Legal dump sites not only attract rodents, mosquitoes, and other vermin that pose health risks, but they can also contaminate surface water and impact proper drainage, making areas more susceptible to flooding. The DOJ's investigation stems from a complaint filed by Lone Star Legal Aid on behalf of Super Neighborhood 48, where German Wilson lives. You know, we've looked at one neighborhood. We think that this trend is likely to bear out over the city. That's Amy Din with Lone Star Legal Aid. She says they analyzed 311 data from the city and found that response times in Trinity and Houston Gardens could be more than twice as long as response times in neighborhoods like Upper Kirby and River Oaks. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner denies the allegations and says he was blindsided by the investigation. Any allegation to say that we are discriminating, this administration is discriminating, it's just not true. Turner says he agrees that illegal dumping is a major problem, and one that disproportionately impacts communities of color across the country. As mayor, he says he's been committed to addressing illegal dumping and other disparities. I'm a native Houstonian. I grew up in uh, one of these underserved, under-resourced communities. Turner says the city has raised the fines for illegal dumping and is expanding its network of cameras to catch dumpers. For her part, German Wilson from Super Neighborhood 48 hopes the investigation will lead to lasting solutions. And she says she's already noticed a difference. She went for a drive the day the investigation was announced to look at some old dump sites. They were gone. I started to laugh. And then I started to cry because I thought, how sad is it in the fourth largest city in the country that the DOJ had to come in for somebody to hear us on these issues. For News 88.7 In-Depth, I'm Katie Watkins.
California has topped heat records for a week now. Just yesterday, Sacramento hit 116 degrees. And this heat wave is straining the state's public schools, causing not just uncomfortable, but potentially dangerous conditions for teachers, staff, and about 6 million students. For more on how schools have been faring during this heat wave, we turn now to Kyle Stokes of member station KPCC. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Elsa. All right. So you and I are both in L.A. where it has been insanely hot outside. Can we talk about like what conditions have been like inside schools here during the last yeah. few days? It's we've well, as you know, Elsa, we've had triple digit heat here for a week. And in the Los Angeles Unified School District, heat is kind of a perennial issue. Complaints about broken air conditioning crop up even in more normal hot spells. Um, at one point last week, the AC was broken or faltering in about 6% of the district's classrooms. But there's no air conditioning system at all in more than half of LA's school kitchens and cafeterias. So wow. the labor union Teamsters Local 572 says food service work workers have been laboring in triple-digit temperatures indoors. Union Rep Adriana Salazar-Avila received one report of kitchen temperatures topping 121 degrees. I had two employees get dizzy and I had to sit them down. You know, do we have to have them pass out from heat stroke before we do anything? And then there's recess. Most L.A. schools, you know, they have very little green space. So there's little shade for students to to, uh, seek refuge under and scalding, scalding hot pavement. Exactly. So what are L.A. schools going to do to deal with this heat? Well, so the district is treating the kitchen temperatures as an emergency issue, promising to bring in heavier duty cooling units, at least for now. At one point, the district also had more than 900 portable A.C. units running in classrooms with promises to buy even more. As for those hot recesses over the long term, LA Unified is beginning to ramp up plans to install more green spaces on campus, which should mean more shade. But growing trees, you know, takes time. And some parent groups and even the teachers union want the district to explore shorter term solutions like installing shade structures on play yards. Well, looking long term, Kyle, I mean, how much are California schools even built to handle this level of of extreme heat that's probably going to get worse in the years to come? Right. I think we're learning many are not. Up the coast from L.A., I actually talked with the school district in Ventura County, where the oldest schools used to lack air conditioning, and they used to be able to rely on a temperate coastal climate to keep schools cool. But now they're canceling classes or holding half days more regularly because of the heat. So they just passed a big construction bond to to install AC. And then some schools simply have old systems. In Los Angeles, there are nearly 700 school campuses. And at 599 of them, the heating, cooling, or ventilation system is at the end of its life or beyond, according to the district. One expert I talked to said that while there isn't good statewide data here in California, it's likely that many districts are also dealing with AC systems. But I mean, didn't the pandemic highlight all the problems with ventilation in schools? And then there was this like infusion of cash from the federal government to fix those problems. What happened to those efforts here in California? Yeah, well, there was stimulus money available, but most chose to spend it on things like air filters and rewiring systems to circulate air constantly, even if they needed a new system because replacement costs are so high. Uh, So this week, actually, also Elsa, a teacher shared with me a picture of her classroom air filter. It was really dirty, covered Uh in dark gray particles. And she She said this was a sign that the AC in her classroom wasn't working very well. So in many ways, this is just the latest event, this heat wave, to highlight the problem of AC in schools. That is Kyle Stokes of KPCC in Los Angeles. Thank you, Kyle. You're welcome. It was hot. It was so hot. It was was like 95, 100 degrees in the shade. The wind never blew. And they say 
that New Orleans has humidity down there, which kind of cools us off, that's bullshit. It was un, it was death heat. Inside the convention center was so stifling hot, people tried to stay outside. Hot as hell, 100-something degrees. It's hot. It was very, very hot at that time. It was 97, 98 degrees. It was hot. And the heat radiating off of the highway yeah. at night was intensely hot. It's hot as hell. That was the worst summer. I mean, that, that was, there was some, I mean, that, that heat was ridiculous. Man, hot as heck in here. It was beyond Africa heat. If Africa heat was anything like that, like I said before, and I'll say it again, they keep saying, go back to Africa. Hell no. People across the West Coast are suffering through a record heat wave, which is having a disproportionate impact on low-income communities. The University of California, Los Angeles, found a troubling correlation. People in low-income communities are four times more likely to go to the emergency room due to the extreme heat that people in high, than people in higher-income communities. Joining us right now to discuss from the Los Angeles is NBC News correspondent Gotti Schwartz. Gotti, what are we seeing about these disparities here? Yeah, hey there, Lindsay. We're going to show you this fascinating heat map that is really highlighting what a lot of people in underserved communities have been trying to bring attention to for decades. When you have a massive heat wave like this, not everyone is going to feel the effects equally. And here in Los Angeles, so much of that starts with who has trees in their neighborhood and who doesn't. On the eve of its biggest heat wave of the year, headed out across Los Angeles, a city where the climate is causing a health crisis. The first stop was to meet Marta Segura, the city of Los Angeles' first ever heat officer. Los Angeles now has a chief heat officer. Why? Yeah, because heat is our primary climate hazard. The extreme temperatures paired with pollution are causing severe health problems in the L.A. area. Everything from asthma to heart disease to premature death, but not everyone's facing the same risk. Marta says it depends on where you live. We have difference in geography, number one, difference in wind, number two, but that's the part everybody knows. What everybody doesn't know is that there have been historic disinvestments in certain neighborhoods that never got the trees, that never got the shade, that never got vegetation. Okay, so now we're going to do a quick little experiment. So now we've got, whoa, 123, 125. So 120 is on the pavement, 120 is on that sidewalk. But then if we go over here in the shade, that grass, whoa, 66. Yep. And then if we look at the building, the building's about 66, 70 degrees too. The building not only keeps people cooler over there, but their utility bills are much less than somebody who doesn't have shade. I gotta say, when you're driving around on a hot day like this and you realize that there is a correlation between the amount of trees you see in a neighborhood and the amount of people that are going to the hospital are for heat-related stress, it makes you see the, the city very differently. And that difference has now been documented by a new UCLA School of Public Health map that tallies heat-related emergency room visits by zip codes showing wide disparities in the city. Some of these differences between neighboring zip codes um, are three times higher. They technically should have very similar meteorological patterns, um, but we see higher excess ER visits during extreme heat events. So in order to see what some of that inequity looks like, we're going to head over to the valley, see some neighborhoods where there is almost no tree cover, and they're expected to see triple-digit temperatures all week long. In the Northeast Los Angeles community of Sun Valley, we met Imelda Padilla, the area's representative on the LA Climate Crisis Council. We are a community where there is three freeways cutting through. 
when a heat wave like this comes through, a lot of people just think, well, just stay inside, use your air conditioning. Uh, but the truth is not everybody can afford it, right? Yeah, so we know that um, heat affects population by age. And the two ages that are affected most by heat wave are senior citizens and college students. The reality is people have been dying, people will die, and for them it's too late. Based on the income, based on the age, definitely this is the kind of place where something like that might happen. Now, it's important to remember that heat is the number one weather-related killer in the United States. The CDC says between 2018 and 2020, over 3,000 people died because of heat-related stresses. So if you live in Southern California and you have vulnerable neighbors, uh, this is a very good week to check in with them. Lindsay? All right, Gotti, I have a real quick question. Only have about 30 seconds left with you. But what does this mean for communities that are experiencing drought and are actually being incentivized to go to Xeriscape where they don't have grass or trees? So right now, the, the big push is to have uh, areas where people can go uh, and escape the heat, uh, especially in these types of neighborhoods. And that means setting up uh, areas like libraries or gyms or places where they have air conditioning. But in terms of the drought, that is a longer conversation uh, the city is having right now with a lot of the emphasis going on protecting trees, uh, but again, scaling back on water. The beach is a really popular spot for a lot of people in Massachusetts during the summertime. But as Chris Burrell from the GBH News Center for Investigative Reporting finds, a system of exclusionary beaches in the state has an unequal impact on people of color. Freddie Hincapier is looking out over the ocean from Red Rock Park in Lynn, a low-income multiracial city north of Boston that sits on four miles of Atlantic shoreline. For most of his childhood, this 27-year-old Colombian immigrant says he had little connection with the coastline. The city did nothing to draw young people to the beaches. There was no programs or anything or of access for me to kind of do any type of activities in the ocean. And when he grew older and wanted to explore, Hincapié found local beaches were either polluted or so crowded that parking lots filled up on hot summer days. Even more frustrating, a couple miles away in the town next door, wealthier and much whiter Nahant puts up highly visible signs to keep non-resident drivers out. Then Hincapié decided to find a way, skateboarding along miles of bike paths to take a breathtaking jump into the cold ocean water from Nahant's cliffs. It's just therapeutic, like tranquility. Still, he worries that he doesn't really belong there. Like, are the cops going to come? Even the neighbors usually are just like, hey, somebody's around here. Can you guys just get them out of here? He says most Latinos he knows never make it to the coastline. They never touch the ocean because they just never thought it was possible or they could do something with it. Lynn residents aren't alone among people of color trying to access one of the country's most restrictive coastlines. An ongoing GBH series found that as heat waves increase, public access to beaches in Massachusetts is becoming more challenging, aggravated by rising home prices and shrinking beaches due to climate change. Less than 12% of the state's 1,400-mile-long shoreline is open to everybody, and it can cost as much as $40 to park. The rest are town-owned and reserved mostly for residents or privately owned all the way to the low tide line. Too often, it's black and brown people who are losing out. If a racially exclusive community adopts a um, resident-only beach policy, then 
we know who that's going to affect more than others. Andrew Carl is a historian at the University of Virginia who wrote a book about Connecticut's restrictive beach laws. In Massachusetts, coastal towns are overwhelmingly white and real estate values have soared. Carl says the entrenched practice of wealthy beach towns banning non-residents or making it hard to park close to their beaches is a form of racism and environmental injustice. In the 70s, that racism at the beach was more blatant. This 1975 race riot, covered here by WCVB, erupted on South Boston's Carson Beach after black civic groups tried to hold a picnic. They were protesting the city's prevailing segregation and a recent attack by a white mob against blacks on the beach. The messages are subtler now, says Nina Estrella Luna, a sociologist in East Boston. She co-authored a study this year that found huge disparities in access to open space for marginalized communities. Even where you have actual public beaches, protected open spaces, people of color are often intentionally made to feel unwelcome. It's very difficult to get there. These little signals that people experience are also a major barrier. A big role, says Estrella Luna, is a history of discriminatory housing that keeps people of color out of coastal towns. On Martha's Vineyard, reached most often by these ferries, the evidence of one type of housing discrimination sits inside heavy binders on these steel shelves at the Dukes County Registry of Deeds. Several deeds dating back as far as the early 1900s include rights to nearby beaches. But racist language in the deeds limited use of the homes to, quote, persons of the white race who are of the Christian religion, end quote. It's just outrageous that something like that would be totally expressed and put in a piece of paper. Paolo de Oliveira is the registrar of deeds. He says that such discriminatory language is illegal now, and there's no efficient way to count the numbers of these covenants statewide. But the troubling language resonates to the present, says Estrella Luna. You would definitely see it in coastal communities that have been persistently white and also persistently higher income. is part of the longer legacy of creating that sense of some people belong here and everyone else does not. Despite racist housing practices, black families still succeeded in starting their own summer community on the island a century ago. One of the most iconic beaches evolved in this era of more overt segregation on the sand. The late Leona Coleman flew first came to Oak Bluffs in 1940 and described the segregated beaches to an oral historian at the Martha's Vineyard Museum. And at that time, they had the Pay Beach, and the blacks couldn't go there. Oh, no. And they had all the little stalls where they could change their clothes, and they put a fence that separated Pay Beach from the Inkwell. Blacks coined the name Inkwell Beach as an inside joke, said Flew, knowing what whites thought of their stretch of sand. The inkwell is now emblazoned on touristy clothing and a point of pride among longtime African Americans on the island. But the legacy of exclusionary beaches survives. You Google apartheid, it's a policy of separating people. Eric Albert is an African American innkeeper in Oak Bluffs. He's picketed town meetings, demanding beaches be open to everyone, not just wealthy residents and summer visitors. Albert says a pledge by leadership in one island town to stand against racial injustice 
doesn't line up with its residents-only beaches. If we're a community that sticks together, then you don't deny people from going to your town beach. Some waterfront cities like Lynn are trying to improve access to their coastline so people in diverse communities don't feel so cut off from the ocean. But critics say the state's beaches will remain largely inaccessible as long as wealthy coastal towns keep their beaches off limits to non-residents. Chris Burrell, GBH, Boston's local NPR. This story was edited by Jennifer McKim. You're listening to GBH's Morning Edition. Racial population tailoring confusion. In other words, don't let the population in any particular place get too big. It becomes difficult to handle. So you tailor that population. You have all kinds of ways. You can easily lose sight of the loss here, of the lives buried beneath, the crops, the homes, the hope. We're in the catcher area of Dadu in Sindh province, a window into a community that's drowning in change. This is normally completely dry, and look at it now, it's a lake, and in some places, it's 20 feet deep, and there are whole villages completely submerged. Stranded, standing on what little land is left, these are the people of Jan Mohammed. Huddled together, here for three weeks, with no access to aid, clinging on to each other. Lal Khatun tells me, no one came here to help. Thank goodness I got my children here, but they have fevers and stomach problems. She wants to show me where her home once stood. This is your house? Completely underwater. This has become an island, and they are among the most vulnerable. There's about 100 people living here. Lots of them children, many of them sick. They are desperate to leave, but they're worried there's just no shelter and no food for them anywhere else. It's cramped. Space and sanitation in short supply. And so is medicine, with disease spreading. This boy has spots all over his body. His mother believes it's caused by the flood water. They're exhausted, but the water is rising, and it's a risk staying put. Many of the children in this area are already malnourished. Lal Hatun's grandson is three months old. He has a fever. It could be very hard days ahead. While they fight for survival, their education is on hold. This is the local school, and they've lost their places of prayer too. Where they walk was once a road, and they can't see a way out. This is being called a climate hotspot, the victim of a world that's playing catch-up. Cordelia Lynch, Sky News, Sindh province, Pakistan. 
By now, you've probably heard about the devastating flooding that's ravaging Pakistan. That country has experienced weeks of heavy rains due to an unprecedented monsoon season. About a third of the country is underwater. At least 1,100 people have died since June, and roughly half a million people have had to flee their homes. And the rains are expected to continue. The extreme weather has brought renewed attention to the effects of climate change, and it's also shifted focus on how countries should adapt to the rapid and unpredictable extreme weather. To learn more about this, we called Malik Amin Aslam Khan. Starting in 2018 until earlier this year, he served as Pakistan's Minister for Climate Change, where he began the work of developing Pakistan's plan to adapt to climate change. And he's with us now. Mr. Minister, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we jump into Pakistan's future plans, I'd like to ask about the current crisis. I mean, Pakistan experiences a monsoon season every year, but this year is uniquely devastating. Why is that? Well, you know, with this year, we've seen a monster monsoon hit Pakistan. This was something which has gone totally beyond anything that was predicted uh, in Pakistan. It's a totally uh, freak event. But it's followed a wave of, uh, you know, climate change disasters. Uh, we started in early May when we were hit by the first wave, which was a heat wave, uh, which was, again, unprecedented. We had the hottest place on Earth in Pakistan for two weeks, and it hit a major part of Pakistan. And that got followed by another wave of, uh, uh, you know, glacial melts occurring in the north because of the heat. And because again, because of the heat, we've had the you know, monstrous monsoon rains. And they have created a flood in their own right. The water is standing everywhere, three to four feet of water. And now the deluge of water, which is coming from the north, is going to hit the same area, uh, you know, this evening or tomorrow morning. We have almost more than, you know, 33 million people who are displaced, uh, you know, climate refugees in their own homeland. And they are out uh, in the open, mosquitoes, are now rampant over there. We are fearing a dengue, uh, dengue pandemic to occur. So it's it's a crisis uh, uh, which is creating uh, you know new anomalies every day. Uh, it's 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 a huge, humongous crisis for for a country like Pakistan, which is already uh, you know cash strapped because of its own debt burden. Uh, so it, it's it's really beyond our capacity and beyond the adaptation measures that we could have taken uh, to to. Uh, you know, live with this phenomenon. Well, well, tell me about that, because you started serving in that role in 2018, and you started developing a plan for the country to adapt to climate change. D- tell me, what, what what were some of your major aims? What what were some of the, the plans that you that you started to develop and, and lay out? Well, you know, we, we had a simple philosophy that we had decided that we are not going to fight nature. It's, it's not a fight that we can win. We have to make nature an ally of our adaptation strategy. And we built our whole strategy around that, around nature-based solutions. So we were planting, uh, you know, 10 billion trees in Pakistan, trees which which uh, keep the, uh, you know, the mudslides and the landslide in place when, when, when rain happens. Uh, so that was one part of it. The other part was to uh, start expanding our wilderness and protected areas. The third pillar of our nature-based solution strategy was uh, plan to divert these flood waters into uh, wetland areas, which are natural wetlands. It would not only restore the wetlands, but also, you know, recharge the groundwater aquifer in Pakistan, which is needed. So all these strategies were in place. Uh, We were working on these. 
But as I said, you know, this is beyond adaptation. You know, no matter what we do in Pakistan, this huge deluge of water, which is seven times normal monsoonal rain like this hitting Pakistan, uh, it's almost unadaptable uh, situation uh, as far as uh, the country is concerned. This is damages. These are losses that we have to bear. Uh, you know, the infrastructure has, has been destroyed. We have about 200 bridges have been destroyed. Uh, 10 million homes in Pakistan have been destroyed. So it's, it's, it's humongous, you know, by all proportions. And it hasn't ended as yet. You know, the worst is yet to come. And, you know, the ironic part of this whole uh, tragedy is that it is hitting uh, a population which has got the, probably the lowest carbon footprint in the world. And it is really a case of extreme climate injustice that Pakistan has got in right at the moment. I take your point that this is a global pr problem, that the, that climate, that these climate changes are not, uh, they're certainly not the responsibility of the people who are most affected by them in this, in this region. I so completely take your point about that. But you also have had uh, strong words for Pakistan's leadership and, and blaming them for inaction. You recently wrote an op-ed for the Pakistan paper, The News International, you wrote, quote, the lethargic and mostly absent relief and response measures to this predicted disaster have laid bare the apathetic state of governance systems in Pakistan, all leading to human misery at an unprecedented scale. Why do you think that is, that the response has been so inadequate? Well, you know, firstly, because, uh, as I said, above normal rains were predicted. So what was uh, the responsibility of the government, sitting government, was to set up early warning systems so that at least the human, uh, you know, the first wave of uh, human deaths can be averted. Uh, that is uh, something I think which needs to be improved. Secondly, I think uh, what is, uh, has to be done in the medium term, and the government has to start doing that, is to have climate compatible infrastructure. And I think these two things are very important. But, you know, having said that, uh, you know, it's a problem which is not our, our own creation. We are, uh, you know, on the wrong side of uh, climate injustice in this case. But at the same time, it's a problem that we will have to face in the future. But at the same time, I think the economic losses that occur because of this, that is where I think that we need the carbon polluters to pay up. You know, this is a war that we are standing on the forefront of. And it is something that, uh, as I said, is not of our own making. Uh, I think it, the world needs to wake up to this reality. It's a disaster it's going to get crash into all the countries of the world unless we wake up and we start creating plans and then financing those plans of our countries like Pakistan. It is something which is really going to engulf the whole world. That was Malik Amin Aslam Khan. He's Pakistan's former minister for climate change. He joined us via Skype from Islamabad. Uh, minister Khan, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your expertise. And of course, our our, our thoughts are with you and your fellow citizens as you navigate this this tragedy this disaster thank you very much We're learning more about the boil water advisory in place for much of West Baltimore. Mayor Brandon Scott, also with the DPW director, and the head of the city's health department provided an update about an hour ago. At this time, we do not know the source of the contamination, but I can assure you uh, that we are working actively to determine the exact extent of the issue. 
identify the source and resume the delivery of clean uh, water to our residents in the impacted area. Now, this is what we learned from that update. The Department of Public Works found the water was contaminated with E. coli during a routine test. The mayor says the department got the first result Saturday. They were confirmed yesterday, and the public was told today. However, an affected fire union says they were told about the contamination yesterday. West Baltimore is the only area under a boil water advisory, but nearby jurisdictions can boil water out of an abundance of caution as well. Now, you can find a map of those areas on our website, foxbaltimore.com. DPW will distribute fresh bottled water throughout the night. More distribution sites will be set up tomorrow. Specifics about where those will be will be announced later. Now, the source of the water contamination at this time is not clear, but the Department of Public Works is not, uh, says it is not from its wastewater treatment plants. DPW says the impacted areas are being flushed right now and water assessments are underway. Health officials say that you should boil water for at least one minute to get rid of any stored water that you have at your home. Now, we have heard from several frustrated residents who say DPW needs to do better. And that one gallon of water is not going to cut it for people in the household. So one gallon of water is not going to work. Let's do right by the people that serve and pay taxes in the community right. and the seniors and the young people. Well, DPW first notified the public in a tweet early this morning. It said it would provide frequent updates, but we didn't hear from them for another eight hours. Health leaders say it is safe to wash clothes and shower if you live in the area, but if you've consumed any water, you should watch out for symptoms. And common E. coli symptoms include stomach cramps, vomiting, diarrhea, or a fever. These usually pop up within two to four days. If you feel you have any of those symptoms and you may have been exposed, reach out to your doctor for treatment. In response to the contaminated water, Baltimore City Schools says that it will be preparing meals off-site at the six schools seen on your screen. Hand sanitizer and bottled water will be available for staff and students at the schools. According to the city school's website, these precautions will be in place until the issue is resolved. Now, several Baltimore residents and city leaders voicing their concerns over the contaminated water, some pointing to illness earlier this summer. Becca says she tested positive for E. coli, but isn't sure where she got it. She lives in northeast Baltimore. Angela in Catonsville says she also had E. coli recently. She gets her water from the city. Theru Vignaraja says the crisis demands urgency. He's asking for city officials to, quote, step up. Sherry Lynn says she's experiencing a water crisis similar to what we've seen in Jackson, Mississippi, citing what she calls decades of neglect from city schools. Well, we want to know what you think. Are city leaders doing enough to hold DPW accountable for its mistakes? So far, 100% of voters say no.
The city of Jackson, Mississippi has restored water pressure to most residents, but it's still not clear whether that water is safe to drink. NPR's Jennifer Ludden has this report on the challenges to reaching a lasting solution. The same day that 600 National Guard members deployed around the city to distribute water to tens of thousands of people, one steady line of cars flowed instead through a quiet residential neighborhood. Silver car coming all the way down. Six months ago, the Sykes Community Center got a filter to purify water for local residents to pick up. Jason Page, a youth mentor with the group Strong Arms, helps direct traffic. No, we just don't do it periodically. We do it every single day. If someone has jugs or something they can put water in, that filter that we have in there, it cleans the water. Because Jackson water has been messed up for a while now. A long while. Halima Olufemi is 45, an activist with the People's Advocacy Institute, and grew up in Jackson. Uh, my big mama and my Jojo, these are my great-grandmothers and grandmothers, would always have to um, boil water, so much so that we would buy extra jugs and they would always uh, pour the water in. At a certain point, the little plastic would start coming out of one jug, so we had to go ahead and fill it. And it was a way of life. Olufemi is helping distribute water in this emergency. So is Danielle Holmes with the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign. She moved here from the Mississippi Delta 30 years ago. Never, I've never drank tap water since I've been here in, in the city of Jackson, never. The aging water lines can leak, leading to low pressure and contamination. There are also broken water and sewage lines and a lead problem. Holmes boils her water and does take showers, but her water's brown and she refuses to take a bath in that. Now before uh, my mom passed away three years ago, it did me good to just go home to take baths back in Greenwood. You know, that was a luxury for me, so. When you ask almost anyone here why the water's been bad so long, the answer inevitably turns to politics and race. School desegregation led to white flight in the 70s. That transformed Jackson into an overwhelmingly black city and a largely poor one. The mayor is black and a Democrat. The governor and most state lawmakers are white and Republican. Again, Danielle Holmes. Well, this is a direct reflection of those that are in power, who have refused or just pretty much neglected to do what they have the power to do, and that's to invest in the infrastructure here in the city of Jackson. The mayor says fixing the water system would cost more than a billion dollars, and there's no way Jackson's shriveled tax base can pay for that. But when the city asks the state for money, it usually gets far less than requested, if any. The governor blames water problems on the city's mismanagement, and this year, he signed the state's largest ever tax cut. For Olufemi, it's all part of the country's fraught racial history. I guess when you look at the fiber of America and the way that they have treated people who are economically disadvantaged, and I always go to people of color because that's what I'm experiencing, and I, I don't think that they care until it, you know, happens to them. So until it affects their homes, their children, their money, then they don't pay attention. Carlos Martin of the Brookings Institution says the impact of race and partisan politics on infrastructure is real, and Jackson's residents are not alone. But ideally, the nation's infrastructure should unite people. In many ways, it's a miracle that we don't have more Jackson, Mississippi's and Flint, Michigan's in this country. Um, and that's for the grace of God and infrastructure that 
ties most communities' infrastructures together. It ties black and white communities. It ties rich and poor communities on the whole. And when we don't see those same communities being served by the same physical infrastructure systems, we see more of these cases. Martine says cities like Jackson lack the political clout to get the resources they need for long-term planning and investment. And it's not clear this current crisis will lead to that either. Money um, fixes things at the last minute. We have generally a history of doing things like what we're seeing right now in Jackson is declaring an emergency once the damage has already occurred. At a recent press conference, when asked why Jackson has had unreliable water for decades, Governor Tate Reeves was defensive. I know that you and the press really want to play the blame game and you really want to focus on uh, pitting different people against one another, and that's certainly your priority. That's fine. What we are focused on is the immediate health and welfare of Jackson residents. It was the first press conference all week where the governor and mayor actually appeared together. Both Reeves and Mayor Shokwe Lumumba repeatedly emphasized their operational unity. When I have been asking for this help, when the state comes to me and says, we're coming to help you, it doesn't benefit for us to try to take jabs at each other, uh, to try to fight in that moment. What we have to take advantage of is this opportunity to realize uh, how we create a better system for our residents. Jackson will get some money from the recent federal infrastructure law, which researcher Martine points out most of the state's congressional delegation voted against. And state lawmakers have met in private to talk about new ideas for some kind of long-term fix. For now, though, thousands of people here will keep lining up for the water they need to cook, wash dishes, and drink. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Jackson. Running water has been restored to residents of Jackson, Mississippi, but the city's water infrastructure is still deficient. The state's capital was without basic water service for a week after a storm knocked out service at one of the city's two water treatment plants. Before the storm, though, there was already an issue. Families were advised to boil water before drinking it or using it to cook. Residents and activists say the problems go back years. For more on this issue, we're joined now by the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Shokwe Antar Lamumba. Mayor, what's the current state of water service in the city? Well, presently, as you stated, the uh, pressure has been restored, uh, but the boil water notice has not been lifted. Um, at the current moment, there is an investigatory sampling process underway uh, to ensure when the actual official sampling can begin. There are approximately 120 sites across the city that the health department has sanctioned as testing sites. There, it requires two consecutive days of clear samples before the boil water notice can be lifted. But what I caution people in terms of is, you know, we've been here before in, in terms of Jackson's infrastructure where we've been able to restore pressure, we've been able to lift boil water notices, uh, but without critical and, and you know, uh, very important capital improvements to be made of our water treatment facility. It's not a matter of if it will fail again, but a matter of when it will fail again. And, and we're going to get to that in just a second. I want to do a play for you something, though. My NPR colleagues, uh, Jennifer Ludden and Walter Ray Watson, traveled to Jackson recently. And they spoke to a woman named uh, Halima Olofemi, who grew up in Jackson. And she said as far back as she can remember, there's been water issues. Let's uh, play a part of what she said, what she told us. My big mama and my Jojo, these are my great-grandmothers and grandmothers, would always have to um, boil water, so much so that we would buy extra jugs and 
they would always uh, pour the water in. At a certain point, the little plastic would start coming out of one jug, so we had to go ahead and fill it. And it was a way of life. Mayor, a way of life. How far back do these issues go in Jackson? Well, I can just recall from, from my introduction to the city. I moved to Jackson in 1988 as a little boy. Uh, I remember in 89 uh, how a storm, a winter storm, debilitated our system then, and I can remember being without water for more than a month. And I can remember that, that there are more times than I can honestly recount over the course of my years in Jackson. Uh, and so it's something that uh, has not been invested in. It's something that has been neglected by administration after administration. And, and uh, that is why it, we have been lifting it up the entire time that I've been in office. Uh, you know, we've been going it the better part of, you know, three years, two to three years. Uh, and so when the state came to me and said that they were going to, you know, join us, I, I welcomed them with open arms. Uh, and so people, you know, certainly have uh, their, their sentiments about the lack of support over the years. But I share with them my priority at this moment, while I have them at the table, is ensuring that residents have the return of service uh, and the quality of water that they can drink. Uh, I think we can negotiate, we can discuss or litigate our positions after that. Mm. Uh, but right now, uh, when people don't have water, they're, they're wanting to know that everyone is working hand in hand to make sure that it is restored. Uh, and that it is of a quality that they can use. And I know the governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, has said that privatization is on the table. You said that you'd consider a maintenance agreement with a private company, but are opposed to totally privatizing the city's water system. Why? Well, I think that the literature is extensive. The history is extensive in terms of what happens when uh, a private company uh, pillages public resources or public utilities. Uh, often it, it uh, affects the rates, and, and affordability is already a challenge in the city of Jackson. Uh, and so private companies are not coming to be benevolent. They're coming to make a profit. And so when there are extensive and critical repairs that need to be made, uh, then they're making that investment on the front end, looking to have a serious return on the back end. And the way that they do that is to uh, raise the rates on the residents. Uh, and so that is of primary concern to me. Furthermore, uh, as you know, the state has mentioned that privatization is on the table, the same company that the city was negotiating with in terms of, a, um, in terms of an operations and maintenance agreement is the same company that the state has negotiated with. And so if it's good enough for the state, then there should be no reason why it's not good enough for the city to reach an agreement which has a, uh, a set contractual price that, that the city pays uh, while being able to maintain and secure uh, reasonable rates for our residents. But as we heard from uh, the resident uh, of Jackson, uh, Halima Olufemi, she says it's been a way of life for her. If, so if it's been one way for so long, why not uh, be more open to a, a radical change? Well, the radical change is actually having support of our system, right? The radical change is actually having uh, the resources to make the repairs that haven't been made over generations. Uh, I know Ms. Olafemi very well, and I know where she sits uh, and, and uh, her concerns. And so she's of the mind that I am, uh, that, that privatization is, is uh, taking people from one state of misery to the next. Uh, we, we have to depart from this notion that privatization is the only way that the system can be supported. That is not true, right? Uh, and and it's, it's furthest from the truth. What is, what is true is that if uh, there is a proper investment made in the, uh, the system from the state or federal resources, 
then it can survive. Uh, or if we, we uh, band together to build a new system, uh, then, then there is a path forward. But what we don't want to do is cause additional harm on the residents, harm where this has become a way of life, and the basic necessity that they need is one that they can't afford. Uh, and so it, it moves them, as I said, from one, one state of misery to the next. And so instead of moving people away, we want to lift people up. President Biden's uh, infrastructure bill aims to put uh, money towards cities just like Jackson um, that have critical infrastructure needs. Will you look to the federal government for help there? I had an extensive discussion with uh, the president. Uh, We talked for about 20 minutes, and then I spoke with the vice president. Uh, They assured me that this is one of their highest priorities uh, and that they do want to support the city of Jackson. Uh, When he uh, initially signed the infrastructure bill, uh, he, he made mention of Jackson. Uh, I have long said that Jackson is the poster child for infrastructure, uh, noting our our water infrastructure challenges. Uh, And so that is certainly our hope, but that requires state cooperation to some extent. Uh, And so I just want to make certain that we, you know, put partisan differences aside uh, and are able to to aim and and work towards the goal of of, uh, a safe, equitable, dependable Water, tre- uh, water treatment system. Did President Biden, and quickly on this, Samir, did he give you a timeline? He said it was a, a priority, but he, did he give you a timeline? No timeline, but he told me the agencies that he would have working on it, uh, FEMA in the short term and the EPA for the long-term goals. That's Shokwe Antar Lumumba, mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Mayor, thanks. And now, of course, the British anthem... Let's take you here now. South Africans have expressed mixed feelings on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. While some are saddened by her loss, others are not moved or indifferent about her death. Let's hear them out. It's sad, yes, clearly it is. But, you know, and as an African, as uh, someone that was colonized by the British, you know, we, we, we don't feel the way the rest of the world feels. In fact, she, the British people must give our land back, our diamonds back. Our, our heritage and that's something that we will always ask for there's nothing much to it because you don't get uh, a lot of uh, reports like that where i'm from you know what i mean uh, we always have to deal with different matters in society and queen elizabeth is just one of those you know uh tabloids uh, stories that you often hear about so i don't care honestly speaking this is the queen it's very 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 sad moment for us for, for everybody not for us but mainly for the people in the uk I think uh, she was very loved by the majority of the people in the UK. It's quite an achievement, and yeah, it was. It was. A, it was. It, it's happened. It's history. A great person, 
wonderful uh, figurehead for the UK and, and that, but uh, she's gone now and there's a bit of emptiness and a bit of sadness for everybody, I think. She's lived through a lot. Uh, Diana is a big mark in her life. I also believe that once her husband had passed away that she'd lost her best friend and that's human. So she wasn't subhuman, she was just a human being following the rules. Her love for people and the way she treats people and with dignity and with respect and with love. Um, I guess she just represents a lot and people looked up to her. As a legacy that, uh, that has been effective in any way because she has not made a difference uh, to, the, uh, to the countries that was once ravaged by the British Empire. India is still reeling from the, from the uh, um, issues of, of colonialism. And South Africa, we here, we have inherited the, the outrages and atrocities that they've started with in the first place, passed over to the Africana, and then of course, you know, thank God that we've now become somewhat, uh, becoming a normal society. While it's sad, like death is sad, um, I don't really know much about UK politics or Queen Elizabeth, so um, to me it doesn't really affect me as a student. It's like a beginning of a new era, you know, so I'm curious to see what's going to happen next, but personally, I can't say I'm happy or I'm sad about it, I'm just neutral. I don't know why we all care. Um, she helped colonize Africa and the whole world. She's not my monarch, she's not our monarch. Um, yeah, it's a UK problem. I just feel like she was human and she deserves sympathy because she lost her life, obviously. We have to mourn for her. But I, I don't really feel bad that she passed, I don't really feel good at the same time. It's very difficult for me because I think really there were stories that she's dead long ago, so that was only a double. But yeah, I'm sorry for them, but I mean, they've got good things and also bad things, so yeah, but it's their country and I must live with it. We've got our old country and our problem. They all held the Queen very close to heart. Well, at least a lot of them uh, did, and um, I know it's a, it's a very sad day for all of them. So I wish them all my condolences. Context of white supremacy. Don't have any condolences to give out for the Queen. Gus T. Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 10, 2022. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in this broadcast, not for spectators. Extraordinary things have taken place on the planet just this week. Certainly, you know, this year, this month, last 10 days, but certainly just within the last seven days, they had new prime minister installed in Great Britain. Then the queen dies. Just that alone. Death of Bernard Shaw, black journalist this week. Even that I pointed that out. Queen Elizabeth passes away at the age of 96. Bernard Shaw died this week at the age of 82, which is still wow, like racists do not intend for anyone classified as black 82 
and to be having your faculties and have some reasonable amount of sense in what you're trying to do on the planet like oh no that's not supposed to be happening at all if it hadn't been you know so many things happened this week we certainly would have taken some time and listened to uh the lifetime's passing of uh Bernard Shaw the importance of black journalists but all of that said uh this broadcast is not for spectators i am not uh begging for folks to to share their thoughts and objectives but this is not for spectators that is a major part of counter racism science uh all of these things happened if you've been listening in certainly you should have thoughts views on some of the things that have happened even many of the other news events things that have taken place on the planet known universe I think they even said that they found a new earth-like planet over the past uh, few days so not for spectators if you have commentary to share star six one the number again is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate not for spectators really the cows never but certainly this program is not the one to just call in and I want to listen to hear what people say no we should be working on our use of words working on our use of words honing our counter-racism science and even just what are our views on what is taking place on the planet now let's see a few things before we get to folks who have thoughts uh You have to check for programs. I don't do announcements because we have so much uh, sabotage, which we've had for the entire 13 years that we've been on the program. So just check uh, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. You can look at the cows group. I post online as well. Uh, just look for normal program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. So you can just call in, listen, see if we're live and or check social media and you'll see dates and times for upcoming programs this week at minimum we will wrap up fred rosen's lying book in the book club this week dial in thursday if you have thoughts on that we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner huge thanks to all the folks who have invested for 13 plus years hopefully the cows has been worthy of your time and energy directly beneath the paypal button you'll see links for paypal cash app uh, and venmo cash app address cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows again enormous thanks to all of the investors who have nabbed or invested in the cows over 13 years uh, you can you'll also see the link for the Amazon wish list listed under Gus T renegade enormous gratitude to the folks who have nabbed an item or five over the dozen plus years we've been on the air hopefully the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy if I can make a request just talking about spectating 
one way you cannot spectate if you don't want to call in you're not able to call in whatever you listen to the archives which most people do for neutralizing workplace racism it is so important I think sharing information about COVID-19 we just had listener call in in California I believe talked about his attempted uh, spouse attempted wife was put on unpaid leave for not getting a booster she is vaccinated didn't get the booster unpaid leave stunning right I th- that plus lots of other things fried chicken jokes and all the rest of it so five sentences that's all you have to do if you can drop an email until justice at gmail.com for the neutralizing workplace racism broadcast that is every Friday just drop an email what is going on safety policy and procedure COVID-19 racist jokes what is your anything related to the things that we regularly talk about Uh, is it minimizing conflict with other non-white people there's so many different things uh, to address did you get a raise did you get to work from home five sentences just drop me and see if we can get at least 10 people it would even be spectacular if we could get 10 people who have never written or participated for neutralizing workplace racism just drop an email if that is not asking too much five sentences I said yesterday like I'm sure many people even many people listening to this broadcast invested five sentences via text whatever social media commentary about the Will Smith slap I think we could do five sentences for labor counter racism science with regards to labor much about you calling in works too but I know some people don't want to be identified and say they get nervous and all that yeah yeah just drop an email until justice at gmail.com white dog story my if you did not listen to the book club way back seems like ancient history 2020 Gary Romaine Romaine Gary got it inverted Romaine Gary white dog 2000 the summer we're reading it about this time 2020 so many references anywho uh, I am uh, at Northgate Library in Seattle yesterday this happened early Friday morning I'm thinking I'm going to get out and get a great start to the day get some work done all the rest of it Uh, I'm standing literally right in front of the library right in front of the door Northgate and so a vehicle rolls up it's a white man in an SUV black SUV he has two hounds in the rear one of them is black I think we had talked about that before uh, white people their affinity for having uh, Negro pets black dogs black cats and sometimes they'll even name them after black people they have a dog and call it Obama that type of thing so he has one Negro dog and one in spirit and color white dog the white dog he steps on the brake so the car is stopped right in front of me at the door the dog they, you know they have the uh, window down it's still summertime so they has, he has the window down and the dog he's white dog he's got his head out the rear he looks at me white dog in spirit 
for I mean he if he could have gotten out of that car he would have took a chunk out of yours truly or probably four or five chunks out of God I mean boy he was now I'm standing there I meet white dog yep know exactly what this is now the owner white man now he sees all of this and he turns and he's oh Roscoe what is wrong with you what is Roscoe don't, don't even worry about that Roscoe wouldn't hurt a fly come on Roscoe I looked at him as I remembered oh pepper spray and I said no it is not okay and uncorked my pepper spray <laughs> Roscoe, I dare you to jump out the car. I want you to jump out the car. This will be your last day on earth, Roscoe. You will be drowning in pepper spray, and then I'm really going to go to town. Now, white people do kill for dogs. Have to make sure I include that. You do not want a situation where you have to kill a white person's dog. You might have to kill them, too. You should be thinking that in your head. I'm going to have to kill two. White people will kill a white person over their dog. If I have to kill Roscoe and he's going to kill me on that one, oh well, last day on the planet, but I mean for real. <laughs> for real. Didn't we just, and didn't we just read this? Joey 22 was talking to his no count racist neighbor and she said the exact saying, I mean, we just read this in the book that I did say was mandatory for the book club. We just read this days ago. She had a Roscoe, did the exact same thing. Black person, I don't know why he does that. What is, what is wrong with him? A black person walks by and he just goes bizarre. And Joey said, my dad is just like that. And he's going around killing black men. My dad is just like that, hates the Negro. His dad shooting at black people. But that did just happen yesterday. White dog, indeed. Moving forward. Uh, so two things. Make another request. Get back to social media. I had a cow's listener. Where I take that <laughs> retract. A person emailed me yesterday. I have no idea if this person is a cow's listener. They may have never listened to one second of the context of white supremacy. They emailed me and asked for contact information for Amna Nawaz. This is a journalist for PBS. We've probably heard some of her segments through the years on the program. You can she has social media pictures, all of that. You can see her profile at PBS and other places online. They said they wanted to contact her because they had a compensatory investment request. Mailey Fuller Jr.'s concept, I've made some requests, compensatory investment requests of whites on this program. Many have been successful. How I got to the White Privilege Conference way back when. My understanding of Mr. Fuller's concept is that you are to make these compensatory investment requests 
to individuals who are classified as white. I asked this person, I did send them, they said, hey, do you, could you help get contact information? I did. But I said, do you know if Amna Nawaz is classified as white, accepted as white by a substantial number of individuals who are also classified as accepted as white? I told her the same thing I just said. My understanding of Mr. Fuller's concept and really most of what he has written is really about how we deal with individuals classified as white. Certainly he has concept in minimized contact, first time, last time, about things to deal with individuals who are not white. A lot of that is about minimizing conflict. But a lot of what he, in terms of questions, and certainly unless I am in error, which could be the case, but I don't make compensatory investment requests of individuals who are non-white. I don't see the logic of turning to another slave who's in the same pitiful position as myself and making a request of them. That's not the goodies place. That's not the getting place. You know where the getting place is, and that's where people classified as white. Now, if Amna Nawaz is classified accepted as white, well, then that is a different conversation. I asked this person, I said, do you know if she's classified as white? This person said, I don't know. That, at least in my view, should be number one. Let's ascertain, am I talking to a white person or am I talking to another victim of white supremacy? That is super at the foundational. That's why I said, I don't know if this person listened to the cows or not, because on this program, I have made many, many compensatory investment requests live on air, many this summer. I don't think you're going to find one, me asking somebody classified as non-white. In fact, way before we get to the compensatory investment request, I ask racial classification. Let's make sure that we don't have any confusion about that, and then we can get to the request. When I ask this person, do you know if Amna Nawaz, do you know if she's classified as white? And they said, I don't know, but it doesn't matter for my compensatory investment request because Amna Nawaz, she knows, whatever that means, a lot of white people. So I'm going to make my compensatory investment request to her. Victims guaranteed qualified, but I mean, wow. This, at least for me, another illustration. Most of the time, not all, most of the time when I hear people mention Mr. Fuller concept, Mr. Fuller's concepts, even Dr. Welsing, it is not accurate, meaning it is not what Mr. Fuller, Dr. Welsing, what they have written not the concept that they have talked about at all. It's something different unless my understanding of a compensatory investment request is wrong. But again, the people who can knock these requests out, whatever it is, can solve this problem the quickest, just following the logic. Gotta be classified as white. In my view, we do not consistently we take Mr. Fuller's information 
it all ends up being addressed to other individuals classified as not white. At minimum, if I'm going to make a compensatory investment request, I'm not going to pick someone where I am unsure about their racial classification. I'm going to pick someone. Hey, if Adolf Hitler comes in today, all the people who are not white, you are going in the oven in the next 30 seconds. I want to ask, make my compensatory investment request to the individuals who are not sweating at all. I'm planning what I'm going to be doing later on today. Whatever happens in the next 30 seconds, it will have nothing to do with me. I am accepted, classified white. Making dinner plans. That is the person that I want to make my compensatory investment request to. Not the person who could be going in the oven in the next 30 seconds. Not the person that's sweating over there hoping, we, I hope my honorary white status holds up today. No, I don't want to ask them either. Amna Nawaz, if you look at her bio page, she's noted as the first, and you can just stop right there, fade out. For anybody where it's prominently listed that you are the first colored anything. Eh. Another slave on the boat. Let's keep it moving. I could be wrong. That was my request, though. You all can check. Amna Nawaz, do you think individuals classified as white would accept? Yes, she is a white person, white woman. Let's hear your thoughts. I put a poll up on Twitter. I think it has uh, in sometime like early Sunday. So you can go vote. Let's see. It was uh, a slight lead where slightly more folks thought she would be accepted as white. But it was slight. Racial confusion is substantial. Racial classification confusion. Make sure I get all the way so I'm not contributing to said confusion. Racial classification confusion is substantial and even in fact I can put the medical metaphorical bow on all of this I looked at Amna Nawaz who I've heard many times and I said ah, she's kind of dark like I don't have any concern there I do not think she is accepted as white but then when I looked at her social media and she had all this Pakistan 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 what's all this about oh her parents are born in pockets. They're like, oh, man. <laughs> anyway, uh, and they certainly are not going to get any attention now. People were saying uh, that they're not talking about this and dark people were a third of the country underwater. And that is not front page news around the world. We're talking about the dead white queen. Oh, the dead white queen. A third of the country is underwater. In fact, if you want a history project, because I had a number of cows listeners who said, I don't really know a whole lot about Pakistan. I would flunk that test, too. Research project. Oh, buddy. Put in Britain. Pakistan. Colonialism. See what you get. 
do that at your library catalog see what you get that right there let's learn let's see the history of racism white supremacy in this part of the world do a twofer learn about Queen Elizabeth and her participation in the system of white supremacy and this part of the world where now a third of the so-called country underwater speaking of water folks that dial in how many people were aware Baltimore Maryland West Baltimore they say had a boil water notice not Jackson Balt Freddie Gray's Baltimore Maryland with a boil water notice that did end this week they say it's better now problem hasn't been solved so they say what so that our list of areas with high populations of black people struggling to get water so it's now Newark Flint Jackson Baltimore the San Joaquin Valley that's uh, Tombstone Territory um, I think there's another area there as well but it's these are small rural areas with a lot of black people where they had contaminated water supply we played a report on them earlier this year uh, Ford Heights this is a suburb in Chicago a black suburb of Chicago where they're having massive water problems they had big reports on that a few months ago within the last two or three months the earlier this summer uh, these are just the places that we know about did I get Newark in there Benton Harbor Newark Flint, so many of them but these are the places that we know about with water issues and there will be more I didn't even they had the mayor in Jackson Chokwe Lumumba he said he remembers growing up they would have an intense storm and they would be without water for a month I wrote down WTH and then I said no water for a month isn't that WTF like for a month like this would happen regularly way of life is that is that like no water you can't flush the toilet no water or is that like the water is contaminated you you know just have to boil it and all that you can't drink it but you have water how many areas do they have how many racially restricted regions do they have where it's 80% white where they don't have any water where people it's been a way of life they had so many articles this week talking about Jackson not having drinkable water is a way of life how many white majority towns is that the case and that's been the case for like decades whole generations of people that's all they know I would love to get the list somebody wants to make that a research project as well I'm giving out research projects one go put in the catalog Britain Pakistan colonialism see what you get the other one how many white mostly white towns or all white towns have these sorts of water problems
I'd like to know. Let's see. Anything else I want to get to? I'll get one report and then we'll get to folks who dialed in with hands up. Star 6-1, no spectator. Well, I'll say two things. Then we'll get to the folks who dialed in. One, I didn't play a report on this. I just, I've talked about it a little bit. And then I noticed this week that other people responded on social media. In uh, Atlanta Public Radio, they had a report about midnight basketball. They were going to bring this back and this is going to be great and help keep people safe and all the rest of it. And as soon as I saw this, I thought, worthy of great pity, extraordinarily retarded global embarrassment. That's what I thought immediately. Midnight basketball, it's almost 2025 like we don't have other programs this is Atlanta they have a professional basketball team they could be doing an NBA podcast series they could get sponsors they could be doing all kinds of things with their time and energy why play basketball for what I mean just my brain computer went in so many different areas with so when this midnight basketball ends at two or three o'clock in the morning, what type of transportation do they have? Where do you go then? <laughs> what sort of job schedule do you have where you're playing basketball at midnight? What sort of job preparation is this playing basketball at midnight? Who else? Like, I only see this with black people. Do any other people in the world? That's another one I guess you can research. That's a program that they have to have midnight basketball. I haven't found that here in Seattle. They got all kinds of, they have indoor skydiving here in Seattle. I am not aware of midnight basketball, although they could have it. I'm a little slow myself. Anyway, so I said, I paraphrased what I just shared with you all uh, in posts online and people commented over and over. Midnight basketball kept us safe. Nobody got shot there. I appreciate the intellectual viewpoint of the cows, but man, you know, sometimes it's needed just a space where black people can go and be safe. Young people. I repeated everything that I just said. All of if I have to have a rim, a rubber ball in order to keep guns holstered, to keep from busting a cap in another nigger's hind parts, we should all quit right now and say, hey, white people, you all run this thing forever. We're going to sit over here in the gym and Kobe Bryant for the rest of our lives. That is a disgrace of the highest order. I do not need a basketball to behave. I do not need a basketball to be safe. I do not need a basketball for gun safety. It's 12 o'clock at night. Really, the question I keep thinking over and over in my head, bed. Why are these folks not preparing for bed? That Do you not have a bed? Do you not have a house? It's midnight. I mean, I don't understand. Particularly the report that we had last week that I thought was revolutionary about sleep, talking about young people people that I suspect they would be targeting for midnight basketball. I don't think they want fogies. They're not talking about LeBron James, 36, 37, 40 year olds. Yes, you all need midnight basketball. No, I think that's for the very people that they were talking about last week where they said, hey, optimally, 
nine, ten hours of sleep. How do you get that if you are knocking down jump shots at one o'clock in the morning? I only brought it up again because I had made my comments and I saw the people like, Men, my basketball is great. It was helpful for us, blah, blah, blah. I looked and then other people came back this week with the same thing. Like, oh my gosh, it can be helpful and constructive enough. All of that is worthy of great pity. It is almost 2025 space stations. 10 hours. It should be about how can I get the best possible sheets, pillows, duvets, blackout curtains, so that I can get my 10 hours of beauty rest so that my brain computer is working at warp speed. And I even shared this one person who I thought did have a logical response, like for real, just playing games. That's black people. We're not doing something serious. It's not a business venture. Not let's see if we can get you in college. They got HBCUs out the yin yang in Atlanta. Let's get you in Morehouse. Let's get you in Spelman. No. We're going to work on your drop step and your three-pointer. At midnight. Worthy of astronomical pity. Now, the last report, then we get the folks who dialed in Star 6-1. The uh, report, they spoke with Mondale Robinson. I posted that one online. I'm just reading exactly what was said. Uh... He said in 2005, Mondale Robinson's brother went to prison for shooting two white men in their legs after they spat on him and called him a racial slur. His father was charged with a felony after trying to defend his own mother from a white man who hit her. So I read that part. North Carolina history. Then it says Mr. Robinson worked to mobilize voters against North Carolina's Amendment 1, which banned same-sex marriage before the Supreme Court legalized it in 2015. That was my introduction into what I was going to do forever. Robinson said, I know how to organize black people. I looked back up and I said, Mondale Robinson, black male victim of white supremacy for sure. I looked back up. Brother went to prison shooting two white men. They spat on him and probably called him a coon or whatever. His father was charged with a felony trying to defend his mother from a white man who struck her. And he went to work against North Carolina's Amendment 1 which banned same-sex marriage. They called him a nigra and spat on him. White racist assaulted his mother. Same-sex marriage. I... I was totally baffled by that. I do not understand the connection at all, at all, at all, at all, other than racists have been very successful. That term conflation 
where we will start talking about white supremacy racism and then somehow we switch to talking about ableism and poor white people and LGBTQI and all the rest of that and everything but white supremacy racism. Now, in the same report with Mr. Robinson, Mayor Robinson, uh, they said, wow, given that all of this has happened to you, uh, he said, what I can't imagine that you would be willing to come and just talk to a white person. That's what the uh, reporter says to Mr. Uh, Robinson. Mr. Robinson's response. I have to read this one exactly as well. So his response. I definitely didn't blindly invite you down here. He tells me my team definitely ran the papers on Will Michaels before he came to Enfield, North Carolina. So you passed the test, brother. Victims guaranteed qualified, you know, on the brother part, for sure. But you passed the test. What test did he pass, I wonder? Like, when they went to look up Will Michaels, like, did they evaluate him to see if they thought he was a racist? Like, what what sort of evaluation, what sort of test did they conduct? His team or whomever, what did they, what did their procedure consist of uh, before they agreed, yes, we will speak to Will Michaels. We'll allow him to come in and conduct this interview. And then, let's <laughs> for him not just to pass the test, but you pass the test brother it can't even just be you passed the test mr michaels and we'll keep it you passed the test brother what <laughs> equally miffed both of those i'm equally missed how we got from white man struck his mother called his brother a nigra and now we're fighting against the ban on same-sex marriage i'm equally what Another illustration of why, please do not ever, 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 ever dial into this program talking about television, Area 8, or calling me brother. Much obliged. I added in the first two just because I forgot. Uh, let's see. The number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate, not for spectators. I guess I will get in really quick. Ruby Bridges. Folks can give me one. Ruby Bridges. We should read like, does she have a autobiography on exact like every, like all the details? Like I would let she wrote a diary or her parents wrote a diary, anything like that. Man, the day everyday experience of her academic year oh my gosh like we right now let's read that in the book club and that's louisiana like bill russell louisiana current book club ronald dominic louis and that's pretty much all kind of same area even anyway but if there's a book on that's another research project ruby bridges i did not know a whole lot of detail about her experience she said her parents didn't tell her anything before she goes to be the first little black girl to integrate so-called 
New Orleans public schools. The only thing she said they told her was, you better behave. That's another one where I can't even do WTH. WTF, and I mean for reals, I have heard that before. And I mean exactly that. Where a black child who is under the age of 10 or approximately in that age group is about to endure the same situation where it's going to be a gang of racist terrorists out yelling and throwing and cursing and coon will kill you and all the rest of it. Might have a white dog out there too. Take a tongue out of you. All of that. And they didn't sit down with you a week in advance and go, all right, this is what you do. And boom, boom, boom. We're going to be waiting right here. And you call it. Nope. What did they tell you to prepare? Did you hear the question I asked? What did they tell you to prepare? I answered you. I heard it. That was the answer. <laughs> I've heard that. I don't. In fact, if you ask me, which one have you heard more? We did read two books on the Little Rock Nine. Which one have you heard more with black children in this predicament went into this sort of situation where they were super prepared, talked about what could happen, what they should do, what to say, what not to say, or no one told them anything. It's not even close. Easily, I've heard more often, black children, even at this age, six, no one told them anything. Worthy of extraordinary pity. There should be a billion conversations before we have offspring. I don't have children. And then do our best to prepare them so that that is never repeated because it has been over and over and over for generations. Worthy of great pity. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in or our caller 299, uh, if you had commentary to share, and then we'll nab other folks if I see hands. If folks are just spectating, again, not doing all the, you know, the banding and hooting and all the rest of it. Um, hello. Um, I, I just wanted to say that because I usually forget because I'm a little nervous. So hello to Gus, the callers and the listeners. Can I be heard clearly? Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, that part, um, with Mr. Mondale Robinson, I thought that part was, uh, very interesting as well. Um, you talked a lot about it, but there was another part at the end where he said, America's tolerance for black pain is unbelievably high. And I think when he said America, maybe, you know, I, I don't know, but that could be another way to say white people. And I think that's accurate. They don't really care about uh, black people's pain. Um Ruby Bridges, I wrote down a lot on that segment, the parents telling her, well, her mom telling her to behave. And um, she said she was the only kid in class. And she asked herself, 
why she was the only kid in the class. Why don't I see anyone who looks like me? The white parents took their kids out of class. And as a matter of fact, the day she said when she was in class by herself, that was her second day of school. The first day, she sat in the principal's office all day long while all the white people came and pulled their children out of school. And then she said, you know, it was five or six white parents or white people who um who let their children come to school with her. She said it kind of like these were good white people. They They let their children come to school. But they were separate. She didn't get to see, and I said get to, um, see these white children until the end of the year. And I don't understand, but she said someone forced them to allow Mrs. Henry, that's the white lady teacher, to take her to where the white children were being hidden. And she was so excited. She just wanted somebody to play with. And... Someone told her, I can't play with you. My mom said not to play with you, and he called her the N-word. Man, that that made me think about uh, when I was was in elementary school. (laughs) I might have been like five or six years old, and you know how you decide you're going to have a boyfriend in school? I don't know, whatever that means. And so I decided I was going to have a boyfriend, and his name was J.R. Monk, and he was classified as white, okay? And the next day he came to school after we decided we were going to be boyfriend and girlfriend, and he told me, my dad said, you can't be my girlfriend because you're black. So, yeah, that memory came back. Um The Pakistan thing, um, 10 million homes have been destroyed. And then the white lady asked the the non-white, I don't know, but he seemed like a non-white male. I take your point that this is a global problem and you can't blame the people affected. I guess she means all the people whose homes have been flooded, the so-called Pakistanis. But the way she asked the question, she asked it in a manner to try to get him to blame non-white people, like the so-called Pakistani government. She asked the question to try to get him to talk about how the Pakistani government was responsible for all the flooding, like white people weren't responsible for it. I thought that was typical, just racist, white supremacist tactics. Um, I thought about uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and um, and Baltimore, and I think they said it was West Baltimore, because white people in Baltimore too, right? But um, I think they said it was West Baltimore, and that's where the Negroes are. But anyway, I think both of those places have black mayors. I don't know. That's maybe not a good sign when you get the black mayor. Things might be going downhill. Um, hmm, That lady in Houston, and she was talking about all the dumping in Trinity Gardens and Houston Gardens. And she was saying how when she would call 311, um, I don't know if she said it or somebody else said it, but it took twice as long for them to respond for to the calls from the non-white areas. They didn't say non-white areas. They said uh, Trinity Gardens and Houston Gardens. But then they named two white neighborhoods like Upper Kirby and things like that. And it was, I don't know. Um, oh, the new words in the dictionary, I I looked 
to see if I could find the list of the 370 words and phrases. No full list. It was about 50 or 60 words. Um, yeet was one of those words. I'm not, uh, I'm 43. So I don't really say yeet and I don't really talk to a lot of people who say yeet, but I was at the pool a couple of weeks ago and I was reading and a white lady and three or four children came. One little white girl, the rest of them were small white male children. And they started saying the word yeet. And it was so interesting because the first thing I remember one of these kids saying is I yeeted him to Africa. You can live with the monkey pox. And then it was just like I yeet in a bunch of super undesirable situations. Like, um, it just sounds crazy. I kind of don't want to list them all because it sounds a little bonkers, but I thought it was fascinating because they were all unpleasant situations. And the first one she thought of was Africa and the monkey pox. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. I yeeted him to Africa. <laughs> Come on. I yeeted him to Africa. Hmm. We for sure needed that one uh, added to the dictionary. Like that, I don't even know how we could get such a sentence together if we didn't have a yeet in the dictionary. I yeeted him to Africa. <laughs> wow. Right on. Context indeed. Um, man, now, again, who is confused? about white supremacy racism she said and so many folks uh, say that you know learning about studying white supremacy racism learning about Ruby Bridges reminded you know her of some things that happened in her childhood now this little fella to go home ignorant about racism white supremacy like it would have just been oh got you know girlfriend and blah 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 and it's gonna be great she's awesome and I'm awesome and blah 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 no and tell, oh, you got a girlfriend. I see. Tell us some details. What? What color? What? Oh, that, 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 that. <laughs> you, you go to school tomorrow and you tell that little nigga girl. No way. <laughs> like, that is what I expect in the system of white supremacy racism. Individuals classified as white are not, are not allowed to be ignorant about racism, white supremacy, and that's another one. Like Gold Star, Neely Fuller Jr., he said, hey, white people will get in trouble with other white people if they are ignorant about racism. And it sounds like he got in trouble with his parents. <laughs> you did what? That's this little, oh my God, we've got a little nigger lover on it. Go to your room. <laughs> deal with you later. I can't even believe this. What is going on at that school? That there system of white supremacy racism. Not, not ignorant about racism. Incidentally, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, third generation physician, general, and child psychiatrist, she had a whole lot of stories about black children, things like that, 
what our female caller uh, just shared with us. She had bunches. Uh, she even has uh, the one in the archives. I believe this one is like 2012. She talked about it was a uh, black girl. Well, obviously she wasn't a girl anymore, but at the time it was a black girl and she was talking to her uh, later in life and she said she was in school. I think she was in that first like Ruby Bridges in that first kind of group uh, of children who were the first to kind of be in class with white students and she said that they she went to the restroom they picked her up and put her head first in the toilet with feces in it and everything all the waste and everything so they pick her up dump her head in the toilet uh, she gets out goes back to class they refuse to let her go home clean her hair out everything change clothes take a shower all that stuff she has to sit for the rest of the school day feces in her hair all of that from the toilet until she can go home to shower and clean up now the question that Ruby Bridges got asked which I thought was so extraordinarily uh, tacky massive act of white supremacy racism uh, the white female doing the interview she asked her so did things get any better? They could have had Ruby Bridges in a closet or whatever. They said they hid her away from all the other students. And this went on. I'm just going and hanging out by myself for an entire academic year, basically. And you're going to ask me if things got better when it started with me being pelted with racist slurs and rocks and whatever else. They're yelling at a six year old where I'm not prepared for this at all and you're going to ask me make sure we get the name in there as well Mary Louise Kelly white woman at NPR you're going to ask me did things get better what even would that mean in this context either of them really pick me up and put me in the toilet or even for Ruby Bridges what would better mean in this context Anyway, uh, the make sure I get in the rest of my commentary and then uh, folks don't have uh, comments if they're spectating, then we can wrap up early. Thankfully, uh, let's see. Brandon Scott, black mayor of Baltimore, black male uh, mayor of Baltimore. And incidentally, Jackson, uh, Mayor Lumumba, black mayor, uh, Benton Harbor. I would have to look. I think Benton Harbor may have a black male mayor as well. I'd have to double check, but yeah, a lot of Newark, uh, Ros Baraka, black male mayor. They got water problems there too. So having a black mayor is not necessarily a harbinger of quality things to come. <laughs> not necessarily at minimum. If you got a black mayor, you better have spectacular water filters at your residence. Get all the bottled water that you can get. One of those 20 year water tanks and everything else. Like, Ooh, we, like, I am sure we are not going to have new sparkling pipes around here. Let's see. What else did I have? I have the other folks. See some other hands. Uh, the the test with Mr. Robinson. I'm still kind of stuck back with that one. Uh, the dumping. Oh, in Houston, I'm so glad we read environmental uh, racism. 
I played the intro to that book, Harriet A. Washington. We read that in the book club, uh, A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and all that. We read that uh, 2020, right at the beginning of the Rona. But they talked about in Houston where they just go where the black people live and just dump everything. Oh, working on the roof. Ah, dump all that here. They said medical waste. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where would medical waste come from? So you mean like hospital officials are coming or private physicians or whatever it is. They just come to the Negro part of town and dump medical waste. I should have did a rewind on that one because that is for sure. So how are you ignorant about white supremacy racism? If you can find your way to where the dark people live to dump medical waste, roofing waste. She said 20 tires. <laughs> come on, come on, come on. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's like you got to have like the junkyard type of a thing <laughs> to have 20 tires. What do you just have a dump truck? Is this, ah, we're not going to the gym. We just go to the nigger part of town, Niggerville, <laughs> and dump it. Ignorant about racism, white supremacy. And now, that's another one. Now, especially what I just said, it's almost 2025. Now, you imagine going to some of these racially restricted regions, especially if it was dark people. You think you're just going to go out there and dump eggshells and banana peels and empty toilet paper rolls and all that out in where they live and they can't come on, come on, come on. Let's see. Our caller out in Florida as well should be with us. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I was definitely unaware of the uh, the boil water situation in Baltimore. And I believe that's where that audio segment where I think the victim was saying that uh, one gallon of water would not be enough. And I'm like thinking in my mind, like that's, that's definitely another tacky way of uh, how racists would treat victims in a dire situation like that. Um, and then it ended, I think, where the person was saying it's okay for them to wash clothes and shower or something like that, but don't consume the water and uh, they, was, they were saying something about the E. coli and that it could cause vomiting and diarrhea and all these other kinds of uh, ways that your body can um, be poisoned, it seems like. Uh, and the segment where I think the, the black mayor in Jackson was with the governor, and I heard somebody say, well, we don't want to take jabs at each other. I'm like, wow. Um, you know, I can, you know, understand that he just want to just make sure that people in that area get help. And, you know, that may be his way of uh, 
countering the racism that's going on with that, uh, the water situation. And, you know, I, I can say, you know, VGQ, because that's a, that's a tough situation to be in, uh, politicians and everything, just trying to make sure people get constructive help. The segment about the, uh, I think that was the, the white students on the bus or something. And they were all singing, uh, what I guess a, a rap song or something by uh, Little Baby or something, which is an interesting name, Little Baby. Uh, and the person that might have been a non-white person's voice, where you know, he said, you know, sometimes people can be ignorant, <laughs> and I, I just disagree with ignorance when it comes to a white person practicing racism when you have that many of them on a bus or anything like that or anywhere. And they're just saying that, or they're just saying the word just to, just to get pleasure and entertainment out of saying, you know, the word nigger or whatever to get a reaction. Like they learn how to mistreat black people, non-white people at an early age. And they know this could be a way we can do that. Um, they are the experts. So I don't think that's ignorance. And I could, I also heard where the guy said that the black female was, I guess, in shock from what he said, that her jaw dropped or something. And that's how many of us, even myself included, have reacted to racism throughout the years being practiced. Other than that, there was another segment that I remember hearing. Oh, yeah, about, uh, I think her name's uh, Ruby Bridges. And when she she said she noticed it got to a point where she had an aha moment. And she was saying, like, yes, man, all of this was happening because I'm a black person, because of my skin color. It does uh, sound like she's blaming herself. I guess I could say that. And then I thought about when you when you say how it's a common thing when victims will say, oh, it's, you know, I, this happened to me, you know, because I'm black. And I said that as well. But it's, it's them practicing racism there. They are being committed to being white supremacists, even at that age, you know, where they're dedicated to taking their children out of the schools. See, that's showing that they're showing their children, hey, you know, you can't be in there, you know, with a, a black person or whatever, a colored or whatever. And on a, in contrast, the the uh, parents of the black child, Ruby Bridges, you know, is informing her in that area. So it just, it just shows that they are the, uh, the ones practicing racism. So, that's pretty much all I had to share, but there was a, a story that was here uh, where I'm at where they said two officers just got suspended with the black male who had his eye bit off uh, or bitten out by the canine, and I guess they retired the canine. That's what they said. They retired the canine, so that's another, um, you know, dog canine story right there, you know, showing 
hostility toward a black person, black male. Uh, and that's all I have to share. Thanks for the program. Crazy. Oh, that's so crazy. Man, oh man. Much obliged, uh, our caller uh, at the courthouse in Florida. Um, oh, that is so crazy. All the way through crazy. Um, the That is so important. I'll get to the crazy. I will share the crazy for sure. But the portion about Ruby Bridges, because language is so important that it's so crucial about race. That's why I played the segment about the words added to the dictionary. Yeet. Sus, even the part where they said, hey, words get added to the dictionary based on how frequently are they used. More people start using them. We add them to the dictionary. That is important, even for counter racist purposes. But it is not that these things happen to us, Ruby Bridges or any of us, because we are black. That's not why it is. It is because exactly as he said, individuals classified as white, they are dedicated to practicing racism, white supremacy. Gotta do some mistreating of people they say are not white. Gotta do it. Teach them. That's what we teach from day one. You heard it, right? That's why I said, man, I gotta look. Gotta get on my work. Ruby Bridges. See, if we got a book, maybe she wrote an autobiography or there's a really, really good biography that goes like day by day. What was her experience down in Nolens? What And where did they hide, put that in quotes, where did they hide her at? So was she in a closet? <laughs> what for this, this year? But yeah, that's not, oh, I'm black. No, they are racist. That's another one. I mean, socialization is so important for children especially at that age especially for other children that are your age so you're five or six you want to be around exactly what she said you want to play with other five or six year olds that is so important for your growth and development to be totally robbed of that you're treated like you're some sort of plague or contagion are you see uh and your parents don't even talk oh my god like whoo we have been terrorized. Now, the crazy, the crazy. Dig that. Now, he said he talked about the officers and they had the canine dog, white dog who terrorized the black male. That right there, the white dog is super black misandry. It's not just mauling non-white people. No, 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 no. Black males. Even in Ferguson with those reports, it was black boys. The dogs are mauling in Ferguson. Now, with the case that he mentioned, I said there have been so many reports for workplace racism, I can't play them all. Some of them I don't even mention. One that I did not mention. Former officer filed lawsuit claiming racial discrimination by Gainesville Police Canine Unit months before mauling of Terrell Bradley. Former Gainesville Police Officer Edward Radcliffe sued the city of Gainesville in December for racial discrimination by the police department the police department's canine unit Radcliffe's allegations paint a picture of the use of negro to describe black residents and officers that same unit became the focus of community backlash this summer after a traffic stop ended in a canine mauling black resident Terrell Bradley Researchers have found disproportionate use of 
force by canines on black residents in departments across the across the country. Duh. Of and they didn't say people of color, they didn't say black and brown, just black residents probably black males. A federal court recently scheduled Radcliffe's case to be heard in April 2023. The attack on Bradley received national attention, but the lawsuit hasn't made news until now. Separately, the state attorney's office for the 8th Judicial Circuit on Wednesday filed information in circuit court signaling its intent to prosecute Bradley on four counts. While it includes allegations of workers' compensation retaliation and disparate treatment of Ratcliffe as a black employee is the suit's description of the culture pervading the unit that are more relevant to those demanding justice for Bradley. A Gainesville Police Department spokesperson declined to respond to allegations saying they do not comment on pending litigation. Uh, Ratcliffe served as a Gainesville police officer for approximately 13 years, the unit says, and became the only African-American officer on the canine unit. According to the suit, racial slurs were embedded in the everyday language of the canine unit and employees had no fear of disciplinary action for using them. Ratcliffe had a tendency to focus on the police radio during training exercises, the suit says, and white officers began calling Ratcliffe radio after a black movie character with an intellectual disability who carried a radio. That's that's my man. That's uh the greatest from uh Boys in the Hood. Oh my his name I can't Cuba Gooding Jr. Cuba Gooding Jr. I can't call them have you all seen that? I can't believe it. I'm not, I'm not I'm totally not mocking people with mental defects at all. I'm totally not. I totally am not. I volunteered for Special Olympics at all, and all of that. Like, that is not anything to mock. What I'm laughing at is that they called this recruit. They said he had some, are you serious, obsession with the radio? So they started calling him, are you serious? That's another one. Racist joke now. Who's ignorant about racism? So they called him radio. The suit says Ratcliffe complained to his colleagues, you are basically calling me a retarded black guy. And (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm not so lame. The Corporal Jeff Kirkin responded with, yes, we know. I can't even. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I told you it was crazy. I told you it was crazy. And I told you workplace racism. There have been so many reports. I can't even include everything. I didn't even mention this. We did workplace. I had this yesterday. I had it bookmarked and everything. Like, oh, if we had time, uh, you know. (laughs) Oh, I didn't finish this. Let me finish this. Sorry. I laughed through the whole sentence. All right. The sentence is. The suit says Radcliffe complained to his colleagues, you're basically calling me a retarded black guy. And that Corporal Jeff Kirkow responded with, yes, we know. That's why it's funny. That's why I laugh. (laughs) When a minority officer says was the subject of an internal investigation, the suit says Kirkow would sometimes describe the situation by saying, 
Sounds like there's some niggers in the woodpile. That's my favorite all time, all time. Like, oh, I love that one. I can't even read anymore. Like, they go on this whole bunch of the. <sighs> the suit says Harrison was. Let me get the whole thing. When the city had to euthanize a retired canine, Sergeant Tommy Harrison is quoted in the suit as saying, Poor Ed has to listen to all of us white cops call people niggers the past couple of weeks. The suit says Harrison was responding to a remark by Owens that the retired dog bit a lot of niggers. I'm going to stop there. I'm sorry that I chuckled all the way through the report. Did you did you hear about all of this uh, caller at at the courthouse? This is my first time hearing that. <laughs> I only just heard about the 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 canine um, biting Terrell Bradley, and they I guess dropped charges against them. But the the white supremacy and the jokes that I I appreciate you sharing that unredacted. For people who were with us for uh, White Dog, oh, for a twofer, for a twofer on this one. So college football season and all that, SEC fans right on, go uh, Roll Tide and uh, go Dogs and all that. So for Gator fans, they took a picture of the K-9 unit. They let them use uh, the swamp. Tim Tebow land. They went on the actual field. I don't know if they're at the 50 yard line, but the, you can see all the little gators in the background and everything where they went and to always oh, Steve Spurrier, Florida field. There we go. That's where they went to take their picture. This is for the university of Florida where they took the picture. And for people who were with us for white dogs, so it's a German shepherd. That's the dog that they use. The Florida canine sh- uh, unit, the German shepherd, white dog. Indeed. Uh, temp man mm, mm, mm. doesn't get any <laughs> racist jokes and to get them by the and this is exactly what we just talked about with Raul Perez those racist jokes that's how you end up with all the niggers get bitten in play. And I, man I bet you I would be willing to bet a thousand dollars everybody bit was a black male a thousand dollars they could be black child any age 8 to 80 Everybody was a black male. Let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Star six one. Please don't wait till the last moment. Um, can I be heard? Bay Area mom. Yes, ma'am. Oh, she's in California. With the what? What temperature is it in the Bay Area? Are y'all with the heat wave or no? Um, so, yeah, but today they uh, cooled it down a bit, so it was more in the lower 80s um, today. I went, I'm in the mountains right now, so it's like the lower 80s versus yesterday. It was high 90s, and then um, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, it was in the 100s. So, so that's how that that was our weather, and uh, I don't know if it's every know why on the weekend it's a little uh, cooler, maybe. So, no one really enjoys it. The heat, I don't know. Um, so that's that's California. So it wasn't that hot today. It's even here in the mountains. It would usually be a little warmer. So it was a little windy with the 
so the wind with the uh, temperature. So um, I wanted to talk about um, the illegal job being, uh, I think that was in Texas, like Houston, Texas. And um, I thought she said 200 tires, but she probably said 20. I thought was just so um, overwhelmed of all the junk they were just putting um putting in the areas and it took like um, at least a year for each each location. So if you dump it here, you got to wait. Oh, there's something there. Okay. Oh, it's still there. Okay. Then once they retrieve it, there's more over here. And they just found different um, places in the black areas to dump at versus in other areas. They don't, they don't even have that problem like that. Once it's done, it's retrieved, and I'm sure there's neighborhood watch to make sure that that doesn't happen outside of um, non-white areas. Um, oh, and the water contamination. Um, this E. coli in the water, they're really... That is so awful. I'm... T- <sighs> Yeah, so they have to boil it first in order to use it or drink it. It's terrible. And that's a lot of places that it's starting to appear as if a lot of places where black people um, turn their water off and on. I know in Los Angeles, that's where I first saw brown water. And Los Angeles, that was maybe 15 years ago. So Los Angeles always had a problem with their water um, and it comes on brown and you have to wait and run it for a bit and then use the clearer water as it uh, clears up. And they didn't do a lot of complaining about the water. I think they just got into the routine of that's how you work it. Uh, Oh dear. Yeah. Uh, Ruby Bridges, uh, so they said, uh, she said that uh, she, like you guys said, that her parents, uh, she didn't know that she was going into this trauma. And there's four federal marshals escorting her to school. And then everybody takes their kids out. And then a year, so she's in a classroom by herself for a year. And then uh, goes, I think I remember seeing something where I think a teacher took her in there where uh, children were at um, a year later. They didn't make it seem as if it was a whole year later. But even when they were yelling and screaming and throwing things at her, her little mind connected it to the Mardi Gras when they throw the beads or whatever they do when they're celebrating in New Orleans. She connected it with that. That That's interesting. And how those parents were serious. That's a whole school year and nothing happened. She had to go in there and see what's going on. Are your kids so Hi, kids. Oh, my. So, yeah, I, I remember uh, 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 about her because I know in Black History Month, sometimes they'll bring up certain characters in history that you can talk about. And they made it to Ruby Bridges for smaller kids. They could kind of, um, if they're interested in the story, uh, catch on to it. Um, 
and learn a little about her and what she endured. It don't make it seem the way it actually happened. It kind of water it down a lot so it doesn't seem as harsh as what she actually experienced. Um, But they make it seem like she uh, broke barriers into uh, uh, black children going into schools that they, what would you say, racially... uh, uh, regional, regionally, uh, right, uh, region, uh, oh, it was three R's, regionally, racially, I, I wrote it down. Uh, racially anyway, restricted region. Down. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, that, that. So, thank you. And I'll mute my line, and thanks for taking my call. Much obliged. Uh, Bay Area mom, uh, the water situation is a true. Well, hopefully you all are staying hydrated uh, out there in California. Like I cannot imagine like I lived in the Bay Area and that's one thing that they kind of brag about. Certainly San Francisco, like they, you know, the cold, they, they, I think the cliche is the coldest winter I ever spent is the summer I lived in San Francisco. Like, it's always cold. At least I think it's always cold in San Francisco. East Bay, like Oakland and San Leandro and Berkeley and Hayward and all of those places, like, it is not boiling hot. Sacramento is not quite East Bay. That's a little further uh, east. But even still, um, if my geography is correct, uh, but even still, like, it is not triple digits and all that crazy, at least not in my recollection. It's not like 80 degrees, mid 80s, not a whole lot of humidity. So, I mean, we didn't have air conditioning where I lived in many of the houses that I'm even uh, houses that I remember that were nice owned by white people didn't have air conditioning because most of the time it's not 100 degrees or uh, 95 and they don't have all that crazy humidity. So ee, different climate. Uh, so hopefully you are staying hydrated and yeah, even, even uh, I said San Juan Valley, uh, that is more like Southern, uh, California, at least South of Bay area, mom, uh, but black people there same contaminated water supply and all the rest. What are we going to do? And all the deliberate years of deliberate racism. It's not quite the exact same way they did it in Jackson, but same thing, white people responsible, white, uh, black people, there don't have water massive problem throughout the world if you include the whole continent and all that lots of people they're struggling with water as well and the same people to blame classified as white uh let's see uh other folks who dialed in if you have commentary to share uh retired firefighter in florida should be with us also greetings everyone uh, the first thing I would like to do is welcome everybody to the uh, warm weather <laughs> uh, so you could be, uh, if you haven't been to South Florida uh, and you're in 90-degree uh, uh, weather, then uh, you know what it means to be in South Florida. Uh, the coolest it gets is in the mornings, uh, it'll be somewhere around mid-80s to late-80s. That's when I uh, 
normally get up early in the morning and uh, do some cardio and then uh, come home and lift some weights. Uh, uh, and uh, this morning I uh, sought to cut the yard, and uh, so I did that in the morning. Uh, and, you know, you have to hydrate, very important to hydrate. Uh, that gets me to think about uh, what uh, the people in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, are going through. I think water is probably the most fundamental need for the body uh, as far as if you're going to put something in it uh, because uh, you you can survive uh longer without food but with without water uh your survival is not very long uh and uh we are witnessing this it's it, 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 in my mind i'm thinking it's a very simple way of mistreatment but yet at the same time it is sophisticated in the way that it is done as far as mistreating large numbers of non-white people. It's almost at the same time anyway. But uh, also, uh, I have been thinking all this week uh, about what it seems like a uh, stepped-up means for a lot of people, and my concerns really is for non-white people, uh, to solve in the in the process of solving problems what the young people call beef uh with each other uh it is now what's on the list that well what's went up on the list of choices what i mean is uh to kill somebody to kill somebody uh I know guns is is uh, probably the most popular instrument to be used, but it's not just guns. Uh, there was a situation, a couple of situations where uh, people were using cars to kill. Uh, you know, so actually, uh, it's the mindset that's the uh, danger more so than anything. And uh, I was having a conversation, that conversation with a sibling of mine uh, on the matter uh, earlier this week. Um, just kind of noticed that how it, it either seems to be stepped up a lot or, or because of the equipment that's in the hands of a large majority of people that can be filmed on a daily basis. I mean, if one chooses to do so, which I don't, I don't think is a healthy thing to do. You can sit and just watch us violate each other for 24 hours straight, and uh, a lot of that is the result of the condition of racism, white supremacy. Um, something else. Uh, Forget it now. 
but anyway, uh, that's basically what, what, uh, I've been thinking about this week as far as, uh, acts of racism on a, uh, or acts of racism or the results of racism, white supremacy, uh, during this week. Thank you for listening. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. One, let me make sure I get in my correction. Bay Area mom was correct when we were talking about environmental racism, illegal dumping in Houston, Texas. It was not 20 tires. It was 200 tires. I couldn't even get my tiny little brain computer to remember that accurately that, oh my God, 200 tires? For sure, for sure. That is dump truck, (laughs) many, many dump trucks, maybe to get 200 tires to the Negro part. It's like, come on, come on. Anyway, uh, with what retired firefighter was just sharing, uh, beef, non-white people being in conflict, which is so heavily promoted and increasingly will be the case with white people promoting all sorts of conflict between non-white people, victims of white supremacy, just oh, instigate as much as they possibly can since they are the global minority and with all of their infertility problems and everything else, and opioid addiction and all of that, oh man they are going to do everything keep the attention off of our little tiny minority on the planet. Uh, <clears throat> in addition, wanted to make sure I got in as well. Uh, and with the young folks, man, that's why I say all that I've been, I posted all the time. You demonstrate. You are a little bit less confused about what's happening on the planet. You demonstrate your understanding of counter racism science with regards to non-white people, your conduct is about minimizing conflict consistently. Yes, we do things that are constructive and all of that, but I mean, hey, I have seen a whole lot of arguments amongst non-white people where it started off, it seemed like we were doing something constructive, or at least we were in unison, and then a big part, major emphasis, minimizing conflict with non-white people and it certainly is not going to be violent a big part of that uh, conflict resolution or what have you minimizing the conflict to begin with I'm not going to do any name calling calling people what they want to be called and people that you don't get along with even watching that to begin with hey this person and I we just don't seem to have constructive contact so we minimize I'm not going to seek out individuals because we do we are trained to do that seek out non-white people just to have disagreements point out how much of a coon you are speaking of coon three time guest on the context of white supremacy and back to Florida Dr. Marvin Dunn look at here what happened this here week And incidentally, the book that he wrote, or one of them, is The Beast in Florida, A History of Anti-Black Violence.
We discussed that book extensively, 2013. But he's a, th- oh, it's a cowbell too. Eee, yikes. Anyway, three-time guest on the house, Dr. Marvin Dunn. Uh, black historian, my group threatened, called Negra in Florida town, infamous for racist attack. This is in the Miami Herald, South Florida this week. Uh, one of the state's most prominent black historians said he was targeted in a racially motivated altercation in Rosewood, a small North Florida city that was almost wiped off the map during infamous race riots a century ago. Now, even that, like, are you serious? Race riots? White terrorists. They continue, Dr. Dr. Marvin, that's what his research is all about. I'm sure that's not what he called the beast in Florida, a history of of anti-black violence. Dr. Marvin Dunn, a professor emeritus in psychology at Florida International University, who has written several books about Florida's troubled history on racial issues. There, what? What? Said he and a small group were surveying a five-acre property he co-owns in Rosewood earlier this week when a white neighbor began questioning their intention. Unhappy with the response, Dunn said the man got into a white Ford F-250 pickup and made several passes at the group repeatedly yelling Nigra and almost striking Dunn's son, Doug Dunn. One of the seven, one of the seven other members of his group called the Levy County Sheriff's Office, which visited the scene. The historian who lives in Miami, neighbors with retired firefighter, also said he reported the incident, which he called a hate crime to the FBI. My neighbor comes out in a pickup and says, what's going on here? Dunn said, then he makes a U-turn out of his driveway, comes back at us and almost kills my son. I was afraid to be on the property, so I came back to Miami. I'll stop there. I shared it online. I shared many of his online posts as well, but this is from just uh, a couple days ago. This week after uh, this happened after Labor Day, so-called with Dr. Dunn again. He's been a guest on the program three times. You can go back here the first visit and then he came back. We talked about the uh, his. I don't even know what you we talked about the the Florida gubernatorial election in the uh, December of 2018. He was very confident that Andrew Gilliam was Gillum, sorry, Andrew Gillum was going to be the victor. That didn't happen. Anyway, Ron DeSantis, 2024. Anyway, that was Dr. Dunn that happened this week in Florida. So much news down in Florida. Uh, Check the schedule, have the times for upcoming programs and what have you, uh, Facebook, other locations. Much obliged for everyone tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy racism if you are in a vehicle you are sober buckled not on a mobile device we need all of our attention and we're doing the small things to try to stay as safe as possible under conditions of terrorism that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all.
for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>